0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at Dr. Matt Show.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
3: Good Wednesday morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. It's another day, another dollar. Let's make it a good one, huh? We've got uh, some interesting things to talk about. Today, of course, celebrating Fast Food Day. Pizza Hut, Pizza Hut, Kentucky Fried
4: Chicken and Pizza There you go.
3: A little promotional activity (laughs) for Pizza Hut and KFC. Today is the day you get to celebrate fast food. Boy, where would you be? Where would your gut be? Oh, McDonald's is in there now.
5: In-N-Out Burger
3: in and outs your favorite. Man, I just... I don't know that I have a favorite fast food restaurant anymore.
5: Can you imagine how much more crowded In-N-Out would be if they had a playground? No, I can't imagine that. Hmm. Have you spent time thinking about that? Yeah. Okay, stop it. That's probably why you're sick.
3: Um, today, fast food day... Nin- in uh, White Castle, first stepped onto the scene in 1921 when hamburgers were offered at five cents a piece, and by 1950, fast food had become an American institution. See, it all it goes back to 1921. So celebrate by going out, buying yourself a hamburger, and then, you know, of course, exercise it off. Hey, uh, we'll be talking today about not just fast food, also the new Supreme Court. Donald Trump is going to have, you know, the opportunity of one for sure, but up to maybe two, three other potential Supreme Court justices in his uh four years. Plus if he wins again, he could pretty much maybe he'll have 12. He can get his sister on the court.
6: I mean, he, she, he mentioned she, it she's not on the list. Not on the list. Cruz might be on the list. <laughs> he met with Trump yesterday, so.
3: Really? Hey. Yes.
6: Okay. So, um, you know how I said that rude thing about your wife <laughs> and your dad? I'm gonna make your day. I'm putting you on the Supreme Court. <laughs> Can you imagine? And your dad? Well, that 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 is. Uh, I don't know where that. Yeah. Where the basis of the rumor comes from, but that's what they. Oh, he might have been talking to him about this. I what? bet a lot of the, um, a lot of the
3: senators probably want that job. Supreme Court. It's a good gig. Oh
6: yeah. Great gig. Show up, you get to wear a robe all day. That's right. You don't have to really talk
3: to anybody. Yeah.
6: I mean, you make huge national, you know, uh, change, you know, big, big, big decisions that affect everyone's life, and then you right. never have to answer for it. It's great. You
3: can wear your swimsuit you can, you can underneath wear your robes,
6: yeah. and then just hit the beach. You can wear a doily, as one of them does occasionally. Yeah, I think he looks weird. Just to dress it up a little bit.
3: <laughs> I think you mean is that Ruth Bader? Yeah, she wears her or doily.
6: I don't think it's a doily. It's a lace. Wait, you think something. she takes the doily like off of the yeah, I, table? Like, sometimes it looks like that. I don't know.
3: Where's my doily? <laughs> that sounds sad. Okay, so is it better now that we've had eight Supreme Court justices? It seems like that they change the they they change the decisions on what cases they're going to hear with eight justices because you know, some of them are there's going to just be major impasse. Yeah. They're too politically They're too politically –
6: They don't want to tackle religious freedom if there's not going to be a decision. Right. So
3: maybe what it does having eight justices is it makes them be more moderate. Maybe. So is this whole idea of having nine justices per the constitution, maybe it's not a good idea. Hmm. Maybe it creates a more kind of radical Supreme Court, a more active politically active Supreme Court. So our next guest uh, will be the talking about last thing you want that. is
6: activist judges.
3: That's it. We hear that a million times. tend
6: to be anyone you would disagree with.
3: So uh, our next uh, guest is going to make the argument that let's keep it just 4-4. Four, four. Hmm. And then let's just make sure there's always four kind of conservative, four liberals on there. And then the only time they're going to make a big decision is when they can somehow come together on it. They're going to have to persuade each other.
6: Legally, or do we just get Judge Judy to break the? To well, break you can't time. go wrong with Judge Judy. I mean, that she's on TV. A
3: firecracker.
6: She has her own show.
3: And maybe with Donald Trump in there, he'll bring on television actors that would be great Supreme Court sure. justices. So we'll get to all that fun, um, plus other headlines that some, some of which you really want to hear about. That's how we're going to lift you up, and we'll find out uh, um, if Jeff's going to be moving into a new house today. Not moving in today, but getting the right to move in.
6: That was one of the signs of the apocalypse, is he got his mortgage approved.
5: No, he didn't. He didn't? Well, we did. Oh, mm. right. But uh, the underwriters didn't have the papers ready on closing day. So we're
3: kind of going to throw the underwriters under the bus without mentioning their company names, but we will list their family names. Something and Sons. Uh That's how it usually works. I'm mad for Jeff, because Jeff is now sick because of all of this. And he's got hair growing out of his face. Anyway, we'll get to all that fun uh, straight ahead. But first, let's get to someone who has no hair growing out of her face. Sadie Nilsson with the headline. Sadie, what's going on?
7: Donald Trump continues to use Twitter and reassured his followers on Tuesday that all is well as he makes the transition to the White House. Very organized process taking place as I decide on cabinet and many other positions, he tweeted. I am the only one who knows who the finalists are. Trump's transition team has been going through very public turmoil with Mike Rogers, a former Intelligence Committee chairman serving as a national security advisor, departing Tuesday. Paul Ryan was unanimously renominated for Speaker of the House on Tuesday in a closed door election, despite having spent much of Donald Trump's presidential campaign at odds with the Republican nominee. Welcome to the dawn of a new unified Republican government, Ryan said at a news conference before the nomination, adding, it feels really good to say that, actually. Ryan will face another election in January where he will need to win over half of the House to keep his position. While that election promises to be a more difficult task, Ryan is expected to win. Ted Cruz on Tuesday visited Donald Trump at Trump Tower in New York City amid rumblings that he could be taking on a role in Trump's administration. As he left the building, Cruz wouldn't answer reporters who who asked if he's competing for a spot. But Senator Lindsey Graham told The Washington Post it's a possibility that Cruz um, is young and could be nominated for the Supreme Court. And finally... Yes. Um, A Maine police department reminded residents not to set animal traps without a permit by concocting a donut-baited police trap. The Augusta Police Department Mm, posted a photo to Facebook showing hapless Officer Chase getting snared by a trap promising free donuts. Oh, boy. The photo was designed to be humorous, but the message was serious. Animal trappers must obtain permits before setting traps. The Post said, attention to all all Augusta residents. Our ACO wants to remind you, you need a permit before setting a trap. Now, with that being said, to whomever is setting this donut trap, please cease and desist. This is the third time this week that Officer Chase was late to work because of this well-meaning trapper for shame.
6: Poor guy. Shame on you. It's a waste of a donut.
7: You know, one time I got pulled over by some cops because uh, I was going a little too fast, and I had just been to Krispy Kreme, and wow. I offered them a donut, and they didn't take it.
5: They don't take bribes. <laughs> you they bribed are... a cop. Did Does... you get two tickets then?
7: Yeah. No. <laughs> wow. I should have got... A less expensive ticket. I thought they were
6: on video. <laughs>
5: she just goes, Hi, Mr.
6: Officer. I didn't realize how fast yeah. I was going. Oh, you can go ahead. No problem. You want a donut?
3: <laughs> I know you guys really like donuts and everything.
7: Not just any donuts, Krispy Kreme I donuts. I'll you a for box of Krispy Kreme
3: donuts. He was holding out for a cronut.
7: Yeah. That's, that's true. a
3: whole different story. Uh-huh. Thank you, Sadie, for giving us ways to bribe an officer. Excellent. Or trap an officer. Mmm. Uh, okay, wowzers, Donald Trump. Here's the he's got a problem, right? Because he's got a couple issues, yeah. in front of him. You you can't be the candidate that hates the media, no, and then have the media get in line for you, yeah.
6: Like like that's one thing Obama had was the media. You know, to so, a point, the media complained a lot about the Obama White House because they said they were going to be the most transparent well, presidency no. ever, I and guess, they weren't.
3: Yeah, but I'm talking about the transition. Yes, they, everyone was lapping up Obama. They At couldn't the time, get enough yeah, there, of Obama there was a of historic. Right. Yeah, there's no h- real honeymoon with Donald.
6: It depends on who you read. Yeah. Well, well, the conservative media... Twitter they, just banned a bunch of people who I think are really happy with Obama, or with uh, Obama, with, uh, with Trump. Oh, but, oh, Twitter banned them. Well, they went through and found a bunch of alt-right... Yeah. And we're talking beyond, say, like a Breitbart. We're talking hoods and... They they banned them yeah. yesterday, and it caused an uproar because you're now – who are you censoring? How are they making these choices? And it becomes a problem when you start picking and choosing yeah. who gets to operate and who doesn't. That'll do it. So that was the thing. Yesterday, yes. Paul Ryan.
3: Paul Ryan. So
6: they had a meeting of the – kind of a GOP team meeting. Yeah. And they all went in. There was pictures uh, tweeted out of uh, a room full of chairs, and every chair had a red hat on it. The Make America Great hat and then all these Republican, Did they? <laughs> you know, uh, representatives come out wearing hats and they're like, yeah, hats are in now. Did you hear? And you're just like, oh,
3: wow. Yeah, funny
6: years. And some some of them didn't wear the hat just because they don't look good in hats or something. But um, so clip play clip one. This is Paul Ryan after
5: the meeting. Welcome to the dawn of a new unified Republican government. Donald Trump is a multi-billionaire, successful businessman who has been so successful because he's surrounded himself with good people. He is a man who has made great successes, created tens of thousands of jobs because he gets good advice from good people who are around him in his life. What's wrong with that? That's a good thing. We're going to focus on doing our job here in Congress. He's going to focus on populating his administration. And we're going to do everything we can to help him be as successful as he's going to be, and which I think he's going to be a very successful president.
6: This is a new wow. tone for Paul Ryan. Really? He disinvited him just weeks ago from a, an event in Wisconsin after the video came out with the bus. Yeah. And he wouldn't, what, he was going to vote for him, but he wouldn't endorse him, and he wouldn't talk about him at all in his weekly press conferences, and all of a sudden it's, it's okay now.
5: Well, he got a free hat. He got a hat. So, he, he was not well, wearing the
6: hat, by the way. I
3: mean, if yeah, I'll do anything for a hat. It's I'll, just, well, it's I'll a, say
6: anything. There is there is a honeymoon period going on as now the Republicans are well, kind of getting used to their The Republicans elect.
3: have nothing but – I mean even if you don't like the guy, you're going to finally get something through. Right.
6: And that was kind of his message is that finally we're going to do something.
3: Yeah. In fact, um, his uh, – what's she called? Who was his um, – His press – spokesperson. Well, what do we, yeah, uh, his campaign manager. Yeah, Kellyanne Conway. Kellyanne Conway was like, it's over. The stalemate of government, the gridlock of government, it's over. No. You you now are going to see what government in action looks like. That's
6: what Obama did in his first term and just kind of pushed things through because they had the majority of both houses. Right. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yesterday, the reports came out that Trump was trying to get uh, security clearance for his kids. Right. He says that's false. He's not trying to do that. He doesn't.
3: Apparently, you don't need security clearance to tell your kids things. He
6: found, yeah. That came out later on in the day. You're like, Oh, OK. Yeah. <laughs> we don't need to go through this nonsense. Also, he said the failing New York Times story is totally wrong on transition. It's going so smoothly. I also have spoken to many foreign leaders. Hmm. So the transition, you know, issues that are where uh, they're behind. That's why Chris Christie was removed from the committee and Mike Pence was put in his head. That's all false. Okay. They're they're doing great, they're on schedule. they are kicking it. That's he has four thousand jobs to fill and he's ready to go. Um I don't know how you would do that. Even if no. you were on schedule, how right. do you fill four thousand spots? Eeny, meeny miny mo. And then um uh, what on Tuesday night he uh, a tweet from Trump garnered some uh, reaction. He is he's assembling a cabinet. He said, I am the only one who knows the finalists. He's the only one that knows
3: the finalists, but he's there's a lot of names being thrown about. out. Okay.
6: Acting as if it's an episode of The Apprentice, right? Right. right. The finalists. It's a contest.
3: Uh, Mike Pence, who's over the entire process, doesn't even know.
6: Yeah, he's got the binder, but only Trump knows yeah. who. Yeah. So okay, people are kind of concerned. Like, is he treating this like a game show? It's how we tried to do the, the naming his vice president. Right. We kind of had this sort of who's going to be and everyone's guessing. And I don't know. The other issue is with the press pool. Right. There, there isn't one. They're, right? they're, they're poolless. He went to. The White House, the the media that covers Trump went to the White House because the White House invited them, not right. because the Trump campaign said, "Hey, by the way, we're going there." Right. All right? He came in the back door. Yeah, there's virtually no video from anybody no pictures, about Trump entering the really? White House. Yeah, and it's like the press the, the 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 press pool that follows called the protective pool. They're always somebody's with the president to document what he's doing because he's the president of the people and yeah. having a guy like that run around and not... And they just rotate those people through
3: because they're... they, they rep- So there might be two or three... Rep- like a, They might be have a videographer,
6: a, a radio and a TV reporter from right. various groups and then they give it to the pool. There's a guy from CBS who documented every golf game that President Obama oh, played lucky. during his presidency. Lucky. And on Twitter, he just kicked that out. But it, it, it seems like nonsense, but at the same time, If the president like keels over and has a heart attack, case in point. Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Right? She's at nine she's at nine eleven. Who knows, right? right? right. No one has any idea because there was no press pool. She was whisked away, the media was caught was in some pen somewhere and they weren't able to follow. (laughs) The only pictures we have of that incident is someone's cell phone. Right. We didn't we could have had better video. Should the American people know what a candidate for presidency Probably. Has a health issue? Yes. Should they know this? Well,
3: and especially once they're made president-elect, you'd think they'd organize a pool.
6: And they say they're going to get to it. They said it last week. They said it. They'll week get four. to it. Yeah. Last night, Trump. They said we're done. We're in for the night. Okay, Thea, and then they go to dinner. They so, all jump in the car and go so, somewhere.
5: So they're saying that they'll be ready in time. Hey, you know somebody else who said that they would be ready in time and then they weren't repeatedly? Your title company. Yes. <laughs>
6: Someone's someone. We're going to get to that. It's going to be a bitter segment, and it's going to be good. He's not well. Cathartic. It's going to be good. Sick. Uh, Giuliani. Yes. Rudolph Rudolph Giuliani. Potential next Secretary of State. It's come out that he's taken money from Qatar, Venezuela, and Iranian exiles. Who cares? So if you're going to be Secretary Hillary Clinton, apparently that's okay. It's fine. Except they just ran an entire campaign on why that was wrong for her. Right? It's fine. It's fine. Has Comey said anything? No. Okay. Not yet. What is the big deal? So here we have more people giving speeches, yeah. doing consultant work. He's worked for Saudi Arabia. He's worked That's for- That's uh, People connected North Korea. He didn't Korea
8: work for ISIS, and,
6: did he? Okay. I don't know, did then he? Then it's fine.
8: Matt, wouldn't you take money
5: from Qatar Exxon? In a second. Yeah. And finally-
3: Just Send me the money.
6: For Republican Iowa Representative Bobby Kaufman is borrowing a saying for disgruntled farmhands who describe legislation aimed at anti-Trump protests. Right? Yeah. He goes, "I've named the bill. Suck it up, Buttercup." <laughs> that's great. So you're protesting Trump? You need to suck it up, Buttercup. And That's the name of the bill. All those in favor of "Suck
3: House. It Up, Buttercup," say aye. No. Many opposed. So yeah, there's some news. That's great news. No, it's not. Yeah. Suck it up,
6: buttercup. It's just more stuff. Is that what you're telling – that's what you're telling Jeff to do? No, not at all. Jeff, tell your company. When it comes to your mortgage – in his situation, this has been going on for weeks. This is ridiculous. He's qualified. Just put it through. Now it's time to fight back. Pitchforks. Go. Hey,
5: hey, did you hear the joke about uh, the mortgage company that said that they would have this guy's – approval letter ready in time and that the papers would be ready for the, house ready for, the no. for the house closing No, no, what is it? Um they lied. You get it?
3: <laughs> yeah. That's good. <laughs> That's <is> good. <laughs> well, you, maybe maybe it'll happen today, you know? <laughs> How many times have they said that? <laughs> it'll happen today. <laughs> okay. That is funny. I'm mean, not for you, but for that guy that the joke was about okay we'll be back folks talking supreme court and uh, the impact of moving one more justice onto the court making it nine justices changes the entire dynamic stick with us this is the matt townsend show When Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia passed away unexpectedly in February, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell immediately announced that the seat would remain empty until the next president took office. This left the Supreme Court with only eight members four conservative justices and four liberal justices. How has this affected the 2015 2016 term? And how will President elect Donald Trump change the current Supreme Court makeup? All of this uh, is what we wanted to talk to our next guest about. Here to speak with us is Professor Eric J. Siegel, a professor of law at uh, Georgia State University, and he wrote a wonderful article about Alexander Hamilton and the new Supreme Court term. Uh, professor Siegel, thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Thanks for having me today. Nice to be here.
3: Love the article and the insights. It's There is, it seems like... Um, a distinct difference when we only have eight justices on the Supreme Court versus when we have nine, they seem much more moderated with eight. Is, am I accurate?
1: Well, you, in, in some parts, yes, and in some parts, no. Okay, teach us. Uh, you know, m- most of the Supreme Court cases are not decided by five to four. They're decided either uh, six, three, seven, two, eight, one, and right. half, or decided nine, nothing. So in, 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 in 80% of the cases, it doesn't matter. In 20 percent of the cases, it does matter, and those are usually the biggest cases. Um, so, yeah, I think having an, an evenly divided eight-person Supreme Court is very different, and I think, in positive ways than a nine-person Supreme Court where either, either five liberals or five conservatives um, have a partisan advantage.
3: Oh, interesting. So 50, though, percent of the cases are 9-0. They're kind of – they're just <laughs> yeah. home runs. They're easy to do, get her done.
1: Yeah, pretty much.
3: But then yeah, the heated much. issues, the ones that we've – the ones that seem to be throwing a curve at everybody, um, th- those are probably the ones that are more equally tied. I'm assuming religious rights, Supreme Court – or uh, Roe v. Wade, um, you know, big, yes. bigger issues.
1: Yes. Uh, exactly. And, 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 you know, so the Obamacare contraception religion case last term was four to four. There was a big free speech case involving public sector union dues last term. That was four to four. Uh, you know, and so, yes, I think that that's true. But I have to say, you know, and one of the things I point out in this article, it's kind of moot now. That if Hillary Clinton had won and the Republicans had kept the Senate, this idea would have been very important. Huh. But it's kind of moot now. But, but my strong argument is America is better off with a 4-4 evenly divided court forever than it is with a court with either five liberals or five Republicans or more, and I, I identify as a as a liberal progressive. Right. But I think we are much better off with an evenly divided Supreme Court, which we might have had. You yeah. Know, the Republicans had, but, but now that Donald Trump has won the presidency, a sense I'm still having trouble. Game over. I um, bet
3: you are. Game over, though. I mean, it's but in, in a way, it, doesn't it create with a with a nine person Supreme Court? It creates kind of. Is that why we hear the cre- the cries of an activist? Uh, judiciary?
1: Well, so, you know, I have, <clears throat> excuse me, I have some views about the Supreme Court that are different than most law professors. One of the things I wrote in that piece is we shouldn't allow unelected life tenure judges to decide our most important social, economic, and political issues just because there happens to be five or more judges of the same political ideology. Mm. And that is what's happened in America. We've had numerous periods of time, both on the right and the left, although more on the right than the left, where the Supreme Court has, you know, for example, from 1900 to 1936, the court struck down over 200 laws involving unions and working conditions and minimum wage laws for no other reason than they could. Hmm. And I think the right thing, that for about 10 or 15 years during the Warren court, the court went much too far to the left. And my position is that's all done based on values. It's not a law thing. It's a values thing. So we should make it harder for the Supreme Court to do that to us. And the way we could do that would be to have a 4-4 evenly divided court forever, which would mean at least one conservative would have to side with the liberals or at least one liberal would have to side with the conservatives. And if, and this is the key point about this, if five unelected life-tenured lawyers in Washington are going to dictate a national rule that binds everybody else, they should ha- there should be some bipartisan buying.
3: Mm. Well, and especially because then wouldn't they have to make the argument on law
1: well, they no, they announced their decision in the rhetoric of law, but uh, so yeah. this is, how I, this is how, how I describe this. This is an institution with usually nine people who have enormous power and their jobs for life and can never be fired unless, of course, they commit a crime or something. Right. So, so if you have an abortion case or an affirmative action case or a campaign finance reform case and you feel very strongly about this and you're human – and you have a job for life and enormous power. You're going to do what you think is best, all things considered, hmm. whatever the law says. Right. Because they're human beings. You know? Right. And I'm not even criticizing that. I'm just describing it. you know. But
3: it's – having a 4-4 case means we wouldn't have them basically just voting their preference. They'd have to convince others on the court yes. to, to – yes. they'd have to sway yes. it. Mm.
1: Yes, and and that's a good thing, and and they through narrower decisions, and also there'd be some, uh, obviously, some bipartisanship, which in this day and age would be a great role model for the rest of the country. Um, But here's the other thing about that. There there still would inevitably be some cases that are 4-4. I think there'd be very few if the Supreme Court knew it was going to be 4-4 forever. But anyway, there'd be some ties. But when there's a tie, what that means is the Court of Appeals judges, in effect, have the final say – and we have hundreds of Court of Appeal judges in 12 different circuits who are much more educationally, politically, geographically diverse than our Supreme Court. Hmm. They didn't all go to Harvard and Yale, although Trump's about to change that because only one person <laughs> on Trump's <laughs> list. So oh, I applaud, really? I applaud that. That's the one part of Trump's list I applaud. Um, yeah. He, he actually, I think, made a point. Um, I'm, I'm actually pretty good friends with the guy who, at the Heritage Foundation who I think who we know now made up the list because Adam Liptak of the New yeah, Times, yeah. reported on that, and um, I, I applaud him and Trump, if Trump had any involvement, for going out of their way to avoid Harvard and Yale people. That's Not great. that I'm anything against yeah. Harvard and Yale people, but, but yeah, we've had enough. Yeah, there shouldn't be all Harvard and Yale, people. right? That's crazy. Yeah, so I Let, think that. So I think my point there is, what would happen if the court ties is lower court judges who are very qualified and diverse will make the decisions, and you know what? If the Supreme Court can't get some bipartisan agreement, then maybe the answer in California should be different than the answer in New York or Texas hmm. or Rhode Island.
3: Yeah. You know? And then it, and, and then I guess the dilemma with all of this is our founding fathers set something up in the Constitution, I guess, mandating the nine judges?
1: No, no, no. Okay, uh, teaches. There's no, there's, there's no number in the Constitution. So where does that come the, the, from? I'll tell you, but the original Supreme Court was six. Even number. Oh, right wow. The Supreme Court was six. It was 10 at one point. But in 1869, the Congress passed a law uh, putting the number at nine, and that's what it still is. But Congress can change that if it wanted to.
3: But no now, Congress said, in power would ever change that.
1: Well, I don't know about that. Had Hillary won.
3: Oh, that's right. And, the Republicans would have.
1: Kicked, I, think they asked, I, I think they might have. I mean, Ted Cruz was already talking about that, right? Cruz, Cruz was saying eight is enough. Uh, now, he was saying it for very different reasons than I would, and I want to be clear about this. I'm not in bed with Ted Cruz. On right, it. right. I, I thought it was enough as long as there were four Republicans and four Democrats, and the Senate could have said to the president for the rest of time that the filibuster is not in the Constitution, You know, and it's been an informal agreement that lasted well over a century without hmm. to unravel, but it lasted over a century. The, uh, my idea was for the Republicans and Democrats to get together and in a moment of bipartisan agreement, raise their hands and say, "From now on, four Republicans, four Democrats. The president can nominate anybody he wants, that's his constitutional prerogative, but we will not confirm any if a Republican dies or retires, Senate's a Republican. Yeah. If a Democrat dies or retires, Senate's a Democrat. The Senate could have done that. I think had Hillary won, we would have seen major structural changes in the Supreme Court. But alas, it is moving. <laughs> mean, Darn I it!
3: I mean, that's. Yeah, I, I mean, that is actually fantastic. I think. Th- then it's about persuasion. It's about yes. Under- it's really yes. about what right. it's supposed to be about.
1: Yes, Matt, that's a great point. And yes, and here's what I found. So really, from the uh, the night Justice Scalia passed, um, I, Salon asked me to write a piece about him. I'm a critic of Scalia's, but I did it with respect because, you know, he just passed. And then I spent the next six months floating this idea, and smart, informed, non-constitutional law professors almost universally loved the idea, Hmm. really. I I spoke about it in public places and talked, but constitutional law professors hated the idea, which I find interesting. Why? Um, Well, change is hard, right? Change Change is always hard. And I think there's some turf stuff going on there, maybe a little bit, um, because, if the, because the less the Supreme Court does, the less kind of law professors get to do. Um, but overall, I think you know, change, change is hard, and this was a change that would have directly affected them in very serious ways. But I will say – so we have something – so the Federal Election Commission has to be three Republicans and three Democrats as a matter of law. Yeah. And, it has, and it has been. Now it's been a total disaster. But the reason it's been a total disaster is because there is no junior federal election commission. <laughs> when the federal election commission ties 3-3, nothing happens. Oh, they can't
3: shoot it down, yeah.
1: Right. When the Supreme Court ties 4-4, we still have very, very, very qualified court of appeals judges making final decisions that will be the law.
3: And that are informed, the right, because the, the yes. it initially went through them. Yes. So it would yes. just go back to them.
1: Yes. Well, actually, what happens is let's say there's a, a case in the Court of Appeals. The Supreme Court uh, takes the case. It's 4-4. It doesn't go back to them. That decision of the Court of Appeals stays. Stays, you know, yeah. reinstated. Yeah, so they've
3: already I, thought about not it. not even okay. hard. Yeah.
1: And my point about the Federal Election Commission is we know it's possible for the Senate to agree that an institution will be evenly divided, and we know they've, they've staffed it that way. Hmm. So all that's possible. Now, I agree. The thing about the commission is, again, when they tie, nothing happens. Right. That's
3: right. Bad. That's, That's got nowhere to go. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Does it I, I guess um, it seems like if if we then needed to stack if a Republican administration needed to put a Democrat on the court, it seems like they'd stack it to be the most conservative liberal. Well,
1: so so some two things. First, my proposal didn't have to be perfect and certainly not. It only has to be better than the current. Case. Sure. Sure. Okay. Second thing, what a wonderful moment it would be. If the president had – if a Republican president had to appoint a Democrat or a Democratic president had to appoint a Republican. Yeah. Now, another pushback I, I – wouldn't it be? I mean, it'd totally. Be I mean, no, I, totally. Now, I, now, the pushback I got on this, and it was fair, is what about independents? What about someone who doesn't uh. want to identify? And that's a fair pushback. So yeah. I, I have two answers. One answer is my proposal had a out where if an independent was nominated, then the Senate could approve them by three-quarters vote or something. So, you know, and, and if that's happened, we're assuming that's because the independent is fairly moderate. That's one possibility. Right. The other possibility, the other, the other, the other reality is we don't have independent Supreme Court justice. That's
3: right. Right I now mean, we sure don't you know,
1: know. I mean, Stevens made it. Stevens was a Republican, but I think, most, I think he was as independent as a partisan thing as anybody has been. But... You know it, we just don't have independence and we're not likely to have independence in the future so mm. it's crazy to, to torpedo a plan for something that almost never happens anyway.
3: that's true it's true we're speaking with Professor Eric J Siegel and uh, learning I think a lot about the Supreme Court justices and maybe you know I guess it's it's a moot issue now but um, boy oh it would have been interesting to start creating some real lasting changes on the Supreme Court if you had to just eight and eight it used to be six and or six justices I mean how we, we just keep growing it and growing it. So we'll take a break, come back, continue this discussion, find out more about how uh, Professor Siegel thinks that Donald Trump will impact the future of the court um, and some of the future decisions, as well as decision making, how, how they go into deciding what cases to take anyway. Stick with us. Learning more about the Supreme Court. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Friends to the Matt Townsend show. Dr. Matt here. On the phone with us is uh, Professor Eric Segal, and he's joining us to talk about the Supreme Court. The new Supreme Court. He wrote a really interesting article um, in the Conversation.com about Alexander Hamilton and the new Supreme Court. Um, and I think I think he's opening our eyes. You know, we there was a moment where if Hillary Clinton had won, but you still had a Republican Congress and Senate, you could have probably maybe turned the the courts and made it just eight, just eight justices. And yet, now with President Trump in, um, and, and by the way, gain the benefits of having the just four. You know, if you made it four uh, liberals, four conservatives, make these justices talk, make them actually, you know, persuade each other, use law to inform their decisions uh, purely. Instead of just making it about bias, then we might have a different type of court. So, Professor, thank you so much for being with us. Talk about Alexander Hamilton, and you cite him in your article. He had, uh, he had, I guess, views very similar to what you're teaching us.
1: Well, so Hamilton wrote the most important historical document we have about the reasons for and the purpose of judicial review, meaning when... When the Supreme Court should strike down laws of the Congress or the states, and what he said in, in the, it's called it was a Federalist, Federalist Number 78. What he said was they should do so only when there is an irreconcilable variance, irreconcilable huh. variance, clear inconsistency between a statute and the Constitution, and, and then he went on to say the Court doesn't have the, the purse or the sword, so they they have no enforcement power. All they can rely on is the public's belief and faith in them. And that the justices therefore should exercise judgment, not will, meaning huh. be very careful how you exercise this power, uh, because you have no enforcement. You know, if the president—I mean, this is sad to say—but if the president, if the president's orders aren't enforced, he calls out the the, the army. Mm-hmm. Congress's orders aren't enforced; they have ways of doing it. The court doesn't, anyway. But that's not the Supreme Court we've ever had. Shortly after that. Um, The court started to strike down laws where reasonable people could disagree over whether they were unconstitutional. Ninety-eight percent of our cases where the court strikes down laws, reasonable people can disagree. So what what it's come down to is the ideology. I'm not talking about just partisanship. It's not Republican, Democrat, but values writ large of five justices. And if you think about it, I have a rule about, like, like, government that I think everybody agrees with, but the United States violates every day, <laughs> which is never, ever give a government official a huge amount of power for life. Yeah. I mean, and that's what we've done with the Supreme Court. They're, they're the only judges in the world of a nation's highest court that has life tenure. So they – so and, and, and it's becoming a problem, and, and the Senate – you know, the whole – after Justice Scalia passed, it was easier – for the Republicans to stonewall the Garland nomination because of cases on both the left and the right, like Citizens United, like the same-sex marriage decision, like the gun decision. If, if you imagine a world without Roe v. Wade, Citizens United, and the, and the gun decision and the voting rights decision, then nobody would care about the Supreme
3: Court. Right, no right. And
1: what the founding fathers really wanted was for no one to care about the Supreme Court and, except when – in kind of high time, you know, in, in high pressure times, majorities did something clearly inconsistent with the Constitution. Right. Then we need the judges to step in. But that's not our government. That's not our country. They step in all the time on really important issues.
3: Well, and you, and, you made and, the point, and, though, too, that sometimes the language is so obscure that there you can't necessarily get that irreconcilable variance because it's hazy.
1: Right. So – that's exactly right, and and we, they're not looking for an irreconcilable variance.
3: I no, mean, they're not and, even and in again, that game.
4: Yeah.
1: And, and again, I have to say that if I were on, you know, I, I'm never going to be, but if I were on the Supreme Court, and an issue came up like abortion or affirmative action, that was a country-defining, country-changing issue, and I had power for life.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: What
1: would I do? I'd probably do what I want.
4: Right.
3: You, I mean you, that's I you have a heart, you have a conscience, exactly, and you should vote, and, you should work your conscience,
1: and the words are vague right, right. So i have I have discretion, and the thing about that is I'm not suggesting that's how they think about it internally, but there's a, I have a friend, Judge Richard Posner of the Seventh Circuit, who's one of the probably the most famous judge in America, not on the Supreme Court and and he's a critic, and the way he's described this is cognitive dissonance. Hmm. All of these judges have gone through law school at, at Harvard or Yale yeah. and other places and have been told their whole lives, well, you're doing law, you're doing law. So, that, so, so it's not that they're doing this intentionally, but they come to see the vague phrases of the Constitution in the terms they, they see the world. Mm. And that's just normal. Right. I think that's normal, but we should do something about it. It's a bad way to run a government.
3: How do, how do you see this going forward? I mean, again, like you pain. were saying, it's pain. It, it's pain. I mean, <laughs> pain. It really, it's and especially for, you know, moderate to liberal um, believers. No, no, it, it's no, it's got no, to be go. scary and painful.
1: I wrote a piece yesterday that uh, Newsweek is going to publish actually later this week called Storm Clouds Over Scotus. Mm. And there, there are two scenarios and they're both terrible. If. Trump gets more than one pick. If he gets two or three picks,
4: yeah. because as you know.
1: You know, four or five of the justices are very elderly. Um, if he gets more than one pick, he's going to pick very young people who are going to be very, very conservative, and we're going to have an incredibly conservative court for 30, 40, or fifty years—not ten years—thirty, mm-hmm. forty, absent some kind of mass disaster. And whether you're liberal or conservative, what is go- conservatives will be happy in the short run. They will. They'll be happy right, the right, court. right. But in the long run. There will eventually be strong pushback and backlash to that. And that's how we got, by the way, to the court packing plan of the 1930s with FDR, because an out-of-touch court went on for too long. So that scenario is bad for everybody. The second scenario is that he only gets one pick. He picks someone like Justice Scalia, which I think he's going to do. We return to Justice Kennedy being the most important judge in the galaxy for another (laughs) 10 years because he's been the most important judge for the last 10 years. And here's what, gets, here's what goes wrong with that. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who is an American hero, I think she is absolutely an American hero, um, one, of the great, uh, uh, you know, one of the great supporters of women's rights both as a litigant and a judge. She needs to retire. She does. Yeah. She, her off-the-court off comments are getting wilder and wilder. Um, and she's not going to retire now, obviously. She's going to hang on as long as she can. And that's going to end up being embarrassing for her and the court and the country. And we mm-hmm. had that before, right. Justice Douglas and Justice Marshall. So it's a no win. It's really, I mean, uh, yeah. Well, no, it's sad. that's why I wrote storm clouds over SCOTUS. It doesn't. It's bad for everybody.
3: Well, and do you, do you think then it'll if we go with your first scenario, it will create such a backlash that finally, uh, and then there will always be a power shift. It seems like everything will yeah, shift back. Of Um, then will anyone ever step up and say, we need to make this non-tenured for life, so you've got 20 years on the court or whatever, and you've got eight justices?
1: Well, here, on the first one, probably not, although everybody wants it. I've never – almost nobody defends life tenure anymore because whenever they do, somebody says – we understand American exceptionalism, but really, the only court in the galaxy that has this, how can we be and <laughs> everybody else wrong? Right. Um, but it takes a constitutional amendment
4: okay. to do that, Yeah.
1: and that's tough. But the 4-4 four, four, or any even number of evenly divided justices, that does not take a constitutional amendment, and that's why I proposed it Yeah. because that is something the Senate could require on right. its own, by itself. Now, the House of Representatives would have to go along with signing a law that reduced the number to eight – and the president would have to sign that, or the Congress veto it. But it doesn't take a constitutional amendment. I'd rather have no life tenure. That'd be my first choice, and that would solve some of the problems. But we—that's harder know, to Congress. do. No, that's
4: hard. Mm, that's right.
3: That's scary. And even, yeah. I mean, especially, I'm thinking for uh, professors like yourself that will yeah. be debating all of these issues forever. Do you think they will? Anybody will be addressing Citizens United? Because it seems like. A major. Not anymore, not anymore
1: than, huh? Not anymore. Not, that's, we're going to <sighs> have Citizens United for the. There's a lot of things we're going to have for the foreseeable future. We're going to have um, either the same amount of gun protection or less. I mean, more you, more. It, it, it's going to be harder for legislatures to pass laws on gun control. Right. It's going to be almost impossible to pass laws on campaign finance reform. It's going to be easier to pass laws limiting abortion and affirmative action is a little too early to tell yet. um yeah. the other thing that, that that people are this is not my area so i want to speak with modesty here but what i'm told is in the area of criminal criminal protections fourth fifth sixth eighth amendments those those you know the the kind of miranda warnings and all that yeah right justice scalia was actually somewhat moderate on those questions in fact he and justice breyer are about the same on those questions
4: hmm.
1: there's nobody, there's nobody on the list that Trump has put forward, who is as to the left as Justice Scalia is on those issues.
3: So, oh, And the, those are becoming huge right now.
1: Yes. On issue, we're in big trouble there. I mean, and everybody seems to agree with that. I mean, we are in big, big trouble there. Because ironically, Scalia sometimes – that was the only area of the law, except for a couple of free speech cases, where Scalia would jump ship and side with the liberals.
3: Hmm. Well, and this proves your point. This is, it's not supposed to be this mercurial, right? the gu- the, yes. the courts aren't supposed to be going up and down with every president.
1: So here's what we know: we know that pre-existing intellectual kind of commitments do not constrain the judges at all. They'll do what they want to do. Right. But there is one thing that can constrain the judges, and that is strong burdens of proof, strong presumptions. You know, you know, like 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 that. That can work. Hmm. Like, appellate judges aren't supposed to reverse lower court judges on factual questions. unless it's really wrong, like clear error. And that works. Like, we know that works. That's what Alexander Hamilton thought. Mm. That's why he used the phrase irreconcilable variance. If you have to prove, if a judge has to write an opinion showing an irreconcilable variance, that's going to be really hard to do. But that's not our system. No. It should be our system, but it's not.
3: No. (laughs) All right, Eric, we're going to have to have you back. Sorry for the depressing. Well, and it's (laughs) depressing, too, just simply because, I mean, even if somebody could get the judges, like even if some being conservative, you might like conservative judges, but it shouldn't be this mercurial because in eight years or four years, it'll just reverse again. It's got to be something more stable that we can all trust. And I think you've proposed some great stuff. Appreciate you, Eric. Keep up the great work there at Georgia State University. Um, truly, it's fun to have the pros on that uh, know what they're talking about. Again, regardless of if everything in your life hangs on the court being your way, just know that in four years, eight years, twelve years, things are going to sway against you. Just like you felt when you know Obama was appointing justices, you know, it, it goes both ways. Wouldn't it be great to have a more stable solution? that is doable. And I'd like, for example, I didn't know there used to be six Supreme Court justices. It doesn't have to be nine, except for the fact that the Senate passed it as being nine. The Senate could change it back to eight. Eight seems to create a more moderate group. Anyway, interesting learnings. We'll we'll uh, continue to see the good in the world. Stick with us, folks. This is the Mad Towns. The show. We'll be right back.
9: Do what your
8: coach tells you? Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball. So let's say
3: you could have anything you wanted. You know, anything you wanted. A mortgage? No, not a mortgage. Let's say, though, you could get all the money you wanted, but in the end, you've got eight years, let's say, to gather everything you want, every resource you want, take as much as you want. Um, But in eight years, there will be another game. And that next game, they will be able to take everything you've got back if they want to. What do you do? Do you play to keep your future or do you play to win now? And to me, that's what we've got in America, where every eight years, four years, eight years, we change a presidency, we change Congress over, we flip it, we flip it, we flip it. And um, for eight years, the Democrats were grabbing everything they could, you know, but saying that they were changing America, helping everyone, but except middle America felt like they were being robbed. Now we have middle America lashing back. And for eight years, four years, eight years, they're going to fight and get everything they want. Perhaps if we really want to fix America, we ought to not play for the next eight years. We ought to play the game for the next 50. What can we do today for America to get everyone involved instead of just playing to get everything I can right now? And what if we could do that with our justices on the Supreme Court? If we were really playing for the next 50 to 100 years, wouldn't it make more sense that we do put time limits on our judges? Wouldn't it make more sense that together we all agree the justices shouldn't be swayed based on every presidential decision? Wouldn't it make more sense that we agree that we will have four liberal and four conservative justices on the Supreme Court forever and make these justices have to talk, negotiate, and do what's right? You know, now's the time, America, right? Changing it. Anyway, just an idea, but let's play the long game, for heaven's sake, so our kids, our grandkids have some hope. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be back.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
1: Your guide on the side.
0: Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at DrMattShow.
0: Call the show at
2: 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend.
1: Now
0: on
2: BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
3: Welcome back, friends. Hour number two of the program. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. This is the show where we give you the information, the tools you need to live healthier, happier lives. Time of the morning to you. You know, life ain't easy, but uh, you you can get better at it. You can get more effective at learning how to handle it and uh, helping your family through it as well. That's what we try to do on the show, bring you the latest, the greatest information. Today, no exception, we will be talking today about um, your brain and your
5: lying. When you are a
3: liar, you lie.
5: Like the mortgage company lied to us? (laughs) Yeah. Like the mortgage
3: company that is that keeps saying they'll have your mortgage ready to do the signing and then they don't have it ready. And then they say, oh, we just need a few more things. Like those lying liars and the liars behind them, um, we are going to talk about why who you should blame for your lying because there's been a lot of reports and a lot of research done that your brain, you know, has this habitual tendency to, to want to maybe, you know, hide things, to give you a, an advantage in life. So just blame your brain. A lot of people just want to blame their brain. But the problem is there's someone behind the brain making the decisions, pulling the trigger, knowing that some of your lies, you actually know you're lying. So Instead, we're going to talk about, you know, be careful. Don't just blame your brain for your lying problem. It's like just blaming your brain for your eating problem. You still are the one driving up to McDonald's. Because today we're celebrating Fast Food Day. I'm talking quarter pound of beef on the hot, hot side. The new big DLT. This is Jason Alexander Better in a commercial, commercial for McDonald's the in 1985. Cool he is shaking the it. Stays hot. The cool stays crisp
4: put
10: it together you
3: can't resist could be the best lettuce and tomato hamburger what a hamburger great ever. song man what happened to the mcdlt that was a sandwich whatever hey happy fast food day november 16th we're celebrating the uh, creation of the uh, fast food restaurant starting with white castle back in 1921 5 cents a hamburger those were the days, man. You could feed your family for a quarter. <laughs> how would it be? We'll get to all of that fun. Plus, holy cow, if you enjoy salads, you might want to hang on to your salad because there is a there's a very dangerous thing going on with one of the ingredients that you use on your salad. I don't know how to how else to say that. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to give tip the hand, but. It's explosive. Relish?
5: No. Mayonnaise. No. It's Mustard.
3: A, let's just say it's a dressing. Okay. That's 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 really explosive. And we have a reporter on the scene at at an explosive dressing factory. Ooh. Yeah. Shikshamway will be joining us in a few moments to talk about this dangerous uh, turn of events that might be impacting your uh, salads. Mmm, maybe worse your life. So they can't really say that salads are healthy anymore. No. Listen to the report. Coming up with Shik Shumway. we'll get to all that fun. Plus just other headlines. There's so much going on. Hey, if you had to bail your wife out who was caught for shoplifting, would you go shoplifting to shoplift the money to bail her out of jail?
6: Someone going to give you a loan? Where are you going to get the money?
5: Well, I wouldn't shoplift my way out. Wait, was that a jab at my current situation? At I'm your mortgage company? Trying yes. to tie the <laughs> show together here. <laughs>
3: yeah. We'll get to all that fun, plus an update on Jeff's mortgage situation. Uh, has the company figured out a way to quit lying? I think you'll be interviewing them, right? Yeah, we should call them. Yeah. Get them on the phone. Sure, it's a little passive-aggressive, but it's just let's just take it to them be aggressive aggressive all that fun but first to Sadie Nielsen with the headline Sadie what's going on around the rest of the country
7: The Kansas Secretary of State, who is an architect of anti-immigration efforts, is allegedly advising President-elect Donald Trump, reportedly discussed the possibility of creating a registry in the United States for immigrants from Muslim countries. He also claimed that the administration would be able to move quickly on the long promised wall at the U.S.-Mexico border. He is a member of the transition team, and he has been in a discussion with advisors for the past few months. Matt Harrigan, CEO of the San Diego-based cybersecurity firm Packet Sled, was fired Tuesday after a series of Facebook posts by Harrigan threatening to kill President-elect Donald Trump. went viral on Reddit. I'm going to kill the President-elect and bring it, Secret Service. Another comment suggested that he would get a sniper rifle and perch himself near the presidential residency. Harrigan posted the comments in response to the election results. Ben Carson rejected a role in the president-elect Donald Trump's cabinet, The Hill reported on Tuesday morning. According to the retired neurosurgeon and former Republican primary candidate's close friend and manager Armstrong Williams, Dr. Carson was never offered a specific position in the administration, but everything was open to him. Ultimately, Williams said, Dr. Carson feels he has no government experience and he's never run a federal agency. The last thing he would want to do is take a position that would cripple the presidency. The Hill reported from a Carson ally, however, that Carson was specifically offered a job as a secretary of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And finally, yes, um, this is a bizarre story. Um, a motorist choking on a chocolate bar lost control of his car and plunged over a 100-foot cliff And survived. The man, 40, was driving with his mother, 60, along a road on the North Island of New Zealand when the crash occurred. The man was not familiar with the road and was driving a relative's car in bad weather with conditions with heavy rain on Tuesday afternoon. And
3: a snickers down his throat. It was that. It was Pesty a. nougat. It's
7: called a crunchy, actually.
4: A crunchy.
7: <laughs> but what really set it off was the fact he was eating a chocolate bar and he started to choke. Uh, Sergeant Grant Marshall said the man braked and then went off the side of the road over a hundred foot cliff into a river below. Oh. And both the man and his mother suffered only minor injuries. I'm not dead. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Break me off they a piece of that dead. Kit Kat bar. Yeah. That is scary
7: yeah but he's 100. he's okay, and apparently the chocolate bar was
3: oh man, great! Can you imagine the, I don't think
7: he would ever eat a crunchy ever again though,
3: no, but can you imagine the lesson his mom was teaching him after that? <laughs> I told you. I hope you've got clean underwear. This off. is why you don't eat crunchies. I told you since you were, were young.
6: <laughs> a crunchy is a brand of British chocolate bar with a honeycomb toffee sugar center.
7: Oh, actually, I would keep eating those. Center Change with an e, by the way,
6: because it's yeah, British. Yeah. It's so it's tray. it's the honeycomb toffee that probably got caught <sighs> in his throat and almost killed. That's him. It's not a bad way to go, though. Great deal on Amazon for these candy Death bars.
5: Death by, by chocolate. Way.
7: Lesson learned: Don't eat chocolate bars while you're driving.
6: <laughs> At least not with a
5: honeycomb of toffee.
7: Fact of the day. Mm,
5: they're that's probably going to give him like $100,000 worth of the candy now. Yeah, yeah. Like that guy who had the Kit Kat stolen from him.
3: Yeah. Yeah, sure, you've got nerve damage, but hey, have some more crunchy. Don't mind if I do. <laughs> oh, that that's scary. You're on a road, probably a windy road, mm. new car that you're not used to driving, no guardrails, 100-foot cliff, mom yapping. and he's like he crashes I told you I can't breathe oh wow thanks Sadie and we don't know if the mom was yapping right but I'm just adding that in there percentage (laughs) shot right there how funny would that be if mom didn't stop talking the entire time
6: and Dolores was telling me this (laughs) (laughs) Did did I tell you what Gwyneth said
3: you won't believe what
6: Gwyneth said
3: mom we just fell 100 feet Get out of the car, Mom. You're in the river. Wow. Well, that's crazy. Um, okay, so choking on a Kit Kat bar or a Crunchy bar, mm. almost to your death. That's bad. That's some bad stuff.
6: It is a tasty way to go, though. Uh,
3: it's not a bad way to die. Um, however, would you ever believe you could die by a salad by salad dressing? Not until I read this story. It's out of control. There was an explosion today in one of the most unlikely places. Luckily, no one was hurt, but your dinner may never be the same. So we sent one of our great reporters, Shik Shumway,
8: to uh, to the site of this explosion to give us some of the latest details. Shik. DeVell McLean was preparing a meal at her friend's house when she heard several loud popping sounds. She was surprised to find her salad dressing bottle was the source of the firecracker-like noise. It wasn't until later that she found out that her dressing had been recalled. She estimates $2,500 in damage to the carpet, walls, a computer, and her dress. I'm standing outside the building where the exploding salad dressing is manufactured, and to say business is booming would be an understatement. The smell of vinegar is becoming quite offensive, the vibrations from the exploding bottles are causing quite a hullabaloo with vehicles. And the erupting dressing is soaking wildlife and even causing birds to literally fall from the sky. As you can probably hear, it sounds like World War III down here. I better sign off before...
3: Chick, chick, Shumway, are you there?
5: Hmm.
6: Quite the hullabaloo.
5: chick, Sadie, we might need Sadie to check in on him. Wow. And Devell, is that her name?
3: Devell, uh, yeah, Devell McLean. Sadie, call
6: Schick and ask if Schick and Devell are okay. Wow. Didn't they? Did they say what kind of salad dressing it was?
5: Nope. No, no, they didn't mm. want to uh, taint this good company's no. name.
6: No, I mean like the the the, the flavor. Well,
5: of the...
3: I think it was ranch. And okay. they, I think they were reporting from some valley. I think mm. it was
5: spicy Italian dressing.
6: Was the valley was hidden by chance?
5: Maybe. Hmm. Interesting. We, and we don't know for sure. Yeah. Because Schick, we lost, we lost I think our he was about connection. I think he was about to say where he was signing off from. Yeah. yeah. And then he was cut off.
3: Yeah. Wow. But yeah, look it up. But there is a smell of vinegar... Um so maybe it was maybe it wasn't ranch. I always assumed it was ranch dressing cuz you know if you let ranch stick around too long it gets kind
6: of nasty. Kind of takes on a life of its own. But exploding yeah. dressing. It's like weaponized salad dressing. I mean, imagine these poor guys
3: like in Afghanistan. Hmm. They're having bombs go off around them anyway and then they just go to have lunch. And then salad dressing explodes.
5: I hope the terrorists aren't listening this morning. hmm Don't want to give them ideas.
3: But apparently her dressing had been recalled. So everybody ought to check your dressing. I, I mean, I'm sure if there's signs, if there are any wires on your dressing, so that may, may be an explosive device. If you hear ticking. Ticking. Or if it looks like your bottle is bloated, you know, I'd probably get rid of it. Or call the... Bomb squad. Wow. Or the lunch lady. <laughs> Call him the lunch lady. I hope Schick's okay. I can't. I just, I'm startled by the whole thing. He's a pro. Well, is he? Yeah. I mean, I mean, how professional can you be around exploding dressing? I mean, most people have never experienced that.
6: Maybe he's able to report under fire and then be able to clear out before it really gets crazy. I
3: actually think in the explosion there are no fires. I think it's just cream.
6: Well, or oils. More of a figure of speech.
3: I
5: don't know if it's combustible. He's always been dedicated. I remember when he did that, uh, the bacon bit hail story, and he he got pelted pretty bad. Oh, yeah.
3: Yeah, no, totally. I'm with you.
6: (sighs) That's a tough story. Tough, tough story.
3: Hey, um,. We talked about earlier about a man that uh, was arrested, 48-year-old man, for allegedly taking merchandise from a Walmart in Winter Haven, uh, Florida. Police uh, are saying when police asked Brian Kroom why he took three packs of electric wire and walked out without paying, he said he was going to sell the merchandise on the street. Mm -hmm. Why? He needed the money to bail his wife out of jail, who was arrested earlier that day. And she, guess what she had been charged with? Grand Theft Auto? Nope. And not lying about a mortgage to keep, you know, to ruin a family's life. That's a felony. Yeah. Uh, He was, he had been, um, he was, she was arrested for shoplifting and charged with shoplifting earlier in the day.
6: So he shoplifted to help her with her shoplifting. Yeah. Hmm. Okay. He He was going to shoplift... Her way
3: out of prison. Her way out of jail. To Uh, pay her bail. And yet, yeah, and yet now he's in jail. Hmm. So it's, you know, I think it's pretty clear shoplifting doesn't pay. (laughs) Yeah, twice. Twice. And now, you know, there's going to be a lot of other
6: fees. So would he he have attempted to match her crime if it was a different situation? Yeah. If it wasn't shoplifting, would he have done whatever? I mean— you're probably better
3: served to just not shoplift, but maybe just go get a job. You know, maybe he thought uh, okay. it's not immediate. No, I can I get see that. where that
6: could work. Right.
5: Maybe he thought that if he was arrested, they would let you know him and his wife be together. Maybe oh, he that's thought great, that's, yeah. that's how it works. Maybe it was a two for one.
6: We share a cell. No,
3: I don't think it works that way. the ain't. It was.
6: A, it was a good try.
3: This ain't Burger King. At on least, fast she, food at day. least
6: she knows he cares. Yeah. As a relationship expert, you have to give it to him for that. Yeah, you
3: got it. Yeah. yeah. If you love me,
5: you would have shoplifted and got me out of jail.
6: Now, she could say he should have shoplifted better.
5: Yeah, that's not got the not yeah. but. I don't think she would be in a position to criticize his shoplifting skills, though. <laughs> you can already see that fight.
3: Oh, excuse me? <laughs> You're the one that got You're caught. You're calling me from jail telling me how to shoplift. <laughs> oh, it's sad. We don't laugh at them. We laugh with them, except they doubt they're laughing. They're not like Jeff's Mortgage Company that just keeps laughing as they say, yeah, we'll have it ready today.
5: I do Ah, occasionally hear snickering in the background whenever they call us. I would
3: love, love to be able to drop their name on the air, but we won't.
5: Unless uh, Unless tomorrow comes and they still haven't gotten it to us. Unless you don't get it right
3: fun stuff folks well let's figure out who to blame our next guest will be talking about don't blame it on your brain we always blame our brain for all of our problems today we'll be talking about why you shouldn't blame your lying problem on the brain even though it might be natural for your brain to want to obfuscate or hide stuff don't blame it on the brain stick with us interesting research up next this is the matt townsend show Well, whether you're surfing the web, watching TV, or even listening to the radio, you might hear sensational headlines capturing an audience's attention sometimes results in misinformation being spread. A recent study from the University, of College, uh, University College of London has resulted in some news outlets claiming you can blame lying on your brain. These misleading headlines has our next guest concerned. So here to set the record straight on what role the blame plays in lying is Dr. Richard uh, uh, Richard Gunderman. Richard Gunderman is Chancellor's Professor of Radiology, Pediatrics, Medical Education, Philosophy, Liberal Arts, Philanthropy and Medical Humanities at uh, Indiana University. And we're honored to have him on the show. Dr. Gunderman, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure to be with you, Matt. Talk to us, um, it is, all of a sudden we'll hear a study that says your brain is responsible for your lying, or your brain is responsible for your eating, and we, you know, a lot of times we end up blaming the brain for a lot of problems, and it seems like we forget that there's there's still a human behind there.
9: I think you're absolutely right. The more we understand about the structure and function of the brain, and how it correlates to what we're thinking and feeling, uh, the more likely we seem to be to want to shift responsibility from uh, human persons to uh, those three pounds of gray matter inside our (laughs) skulls. And uh, sometimes I think that does us and and certainly would do our children and our grandchildren a disservice by creating the uh, false presumption that we're not somehow responsible for our choices and actions.
3: Mm. Talk about it. I mean, a lot of the argument is simply that the brain is, you know, it's like a machine. And once the machine gets going, the machine just does what the machine's supposed to do.
9: Yeah, I mean, if if you think of a clock, for example, maybe a, a grandfather clock is a model of a machine, you know, there are gears turning in there. And uh, as the hands move around the clock face, uh, you can basically predict in advance exactly where they 'll be an hour from now or even uh, a day from now, but that that model of a machine would be grossly misleading when thinking about the human brain, which for one thing is simply far more complex than any machine, including uh, you know the most advanced supercomputers we work with every day hmm. but but you know, compared to an automobile or a clock or even uh, the, the the laptop computers many of us use, the brain is a great deal more complex. As far as we know, it might have uh, say a hundred billion neurons. You know, the the cells that uh, do most of the uh, processing in the brain, as far as we know, and maybe as as many as a hundred or two hundred trillion. Synapses. Mm. You know, these are the points where neurons connect to each other, and, and you know that just makes our conventional notion of a machine almost uh, uh, ridiculously simplified, comparing compared to what's going on in our heads.
3: Is there any is there any organ in our body more complicated than the brain?
9: Well. I think the first and important answer to that is we don't know for sure. We we (laughs) like to assume that we've discovered basically everything that there is to be known, but as a physician with a scientific background, I can tell you that I'm I'm convinced that what remains to be discovered, including about our own bodies and how our bodies function, uh, probably eclipses what we've discovered to date. But I do think, you know, most uh, neuroscientists and physicians would probably answer your question in the affirmative, that the brain is, in fact, the most complex organ in the human body. But but that's not in any way to say that we are our brains.
3: Right. In fact, make differentiate. What is the difference between the brain and the mind?
9: Well... Uh, you know, uh, we can anesthetize a person, and uh, thinking and and feeling and acting seems to stop, and we can let the anesthetic wear off, and we wake back up. But I I really don't think we can say that uh, what's going on in the brain in terms of uh, neurotransmitters and uh, electrical signals is the same thing as thinking. Mm. I mean, it it would be like saying uh, the color red is a particular wavelength in the electromagnetic spectrum, or uh, you know falling in love is uh, associated with a change in the balance of certain hormones or neurochemicals? <laughs> things are associated with each other, just like uh, you know when William Shakespeare sits down to write Hamlet or Macbeth uh, you know a, a quill and some ink are being dragged across a piece of paper. But it would be uh, silly to say that, uh, you know, those great works of drama are nothing more than spots of ink on a piece of paper.
3: Mm, that was That's a great way to explain it. And in the end, we so we aren't just our brain. We also have a mind. We have a will. We have values. We have uh, our education. We have our environment. We have so many our hormonal aspects. We have so many different variables that make up... Why we choose to lie, and yet some researchers will still put that title, let's just blame the brain for the lying.
9: Well, it's so tempting, particularly if you earn your living from doing uh, biomedical research, the sort of thing we can do in laboratories and, you know, know, using functional MRI which is the technique that was used in this University College London study, it, it's really tempting to say, you know, the more we learn about this science, the more we'll understand why why we do the things we do, including lying. But uh, in fact, anybody who's lied, and I assume that includes... Yeah. Uh, all our listeners, and perhaps you and I as well, yep. Matt.
3: In fact, I lie all day. Uh, we know
9: that, you know, uh, sometimes it's an offhand sort of thing. Sometimes it's the product of a long uh, process of deliberation. But at some point, we are making a choice to misrepresent the truth. And uh, that's associated with responsibility. You know, people may suffer. Uh, make bad decisions based on our representation, uh, e- even if they don't suffer any concrete consequences, you know, in a way we've betrayed our trust with that person. And, uh, you know, those moral consequences, what it means for human relationships in families and communities, you know, even on the national political scene, uh, that that's something we simply can't afford to neglect or try to push off to one side.
3: Mm. It is so true is what what made you um, I mean, you're you're an acclaimed uh, researcher and teacher. You have you've won so many awards at your university. What made you um, feel such a compelling need to respond to this issue, to this article?
9: Uh, partly it's the way the news is reported in the headlines for example cnn cable news network ran a headline that said lying may be your brain's fault honestly (laughs) so you know if if i read that and in fact read the subsequent article i might easily come away with the impression well this lying thing that's just the product of neurons and neurochemicals and synapses and uh, even pbs Reported telling a lie makes the way for the brain to keep lying. I mean, there's this shift of uh, causation, a shift in responsibility from the human person to the brain. And and, and I think that's quite dangerous.
3: Hmm. I agree. Like, make people own it, right? Own?
9: Yeah, I mean, you, you may remember, this will date me, Matt. I, I don't know how old you are, but 47. I can remember on uh, the old laugh in television comedy yeah, yeah. series, which, by the way, was rated about number one in the U.S. in the late 60s. There was a comedian named Flip Wilson yeah. who would say, The devil made me do it. <laughs> and, you know, I think we're uh, substituting a, a, another false actor for the devil in this case, namely the brain. You know, Mm. well, my brain made me do it. Of course I didn't want to do it. And, you know, had I been more rested or had more caffeine on board or had my, uh, you know, state of mind been better, of course I never would have done that. But, but, you know, it was my brain's fault. That's just uh, no way uh, to lead a human life, and certainly not the way we want to bring up our children and grandchildren who need to understand that, you know, we need to see ourselves as responsible and take responsibility for the choices we make in life.
3: It seems we like I see this more and more. Um, just doing this radio show, where I we're constantly finding other stories like this. The brain, you know, research the fMRI's studies are coming out more abundantly. It seems like everyone has more access to an fMRI, and. Uh, so a lot of claims and then it's almost like one claim immediately negates the last claim which negates the next claim and i think who's what's real science anymore and it, it's almost more becoming so popularized by the media some of the science that you feel like the science is suffering
9: well what i mean sometimes these things get somewhat sensationalized or yeah. you know blown a little bit out of proportion what the researchers showed here was that a, a part of the brain called the amygdala, yep. it's associated, broadly speaking, with things like emotion and decision-making, that as subjects told lies one after another, the activation of that part of the brain decreased, which could be interpreted as meaning that we just become accustomed to lying. You know, it gets, yeah. basically it gets easier. But that in itself is a bit of a conceptual leap, and, and even if that's true, uh, those changes in the brain don't prove that, uh, you know, it's the brain that's making the choice to lie.
3: Mm, it's so true. I love a lot of your work on The Atlantic. And we'll take a break and come back. Really, go check out com and look up Dr. Richard Gunderman. Such interesting subjects and topics that he takes on, um, a lot, mostly medical kind of related. But uh, just... How you see patients, how we look at our doctors, you know, who's, who's making suggestions that drive us uh, to, to make medical decisions in our lives powerful insight. And today we're talking about, you know, who we blame for lying. We need to be taking our own responsibility for what our brain is doing, um, at least understanding it as much as we can. We'll take a break. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. And if we could help, help you become the kind of person you want to become. We'll be back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone is Dr. Richard Gunderman. He is uh, Chancellor's Professor of Radiology at uh, University of Indiana and is also... Uh, the nine-time recipient of Indiana University Trustee's Teaching Award received the 2012 Robert Glazer Award, the highest teaching award of the Association of American Medical Colleges. He's authored nearly 500 articles, uh, scholarly articles, and has published eight books. The last book uh, was uh, titled "X-Ray Vision: The Evolution of Medical Imaging and Its Human Significance." Dr. Richard Gunderman, thank you so much for being with us.
9: It's a pleasure, Matt.
3: Where does what's the future of this? Uh, As we kind of move into more of how they did the study of imaging now is we we now are learning a lot about how the brain works, how the amygdala works um, with x-ray, with with uh, fMRI. Um, Talk about how looking in the brain is going to help us understand maybe the psychology, mental health issues at a different level.
9: Well, it, there's no doubt that the brains of people with mental illnesses and the brains with so-called normal or healthy, healthy people are, differ in some respects. Uh, sometimes different parts of the brain are larger or smaller in other cases they're more or less activated which when we're talking about fmri really just means they they get more blood flow that's what we mean Mm. by activation which suggests that they're working harder we know that uh, the brains of people differ, uh, differ in fact in some respects the brains of adults and children differ, the brains of men and women differ, the brains of uh, middle-aged and elderly adults differ, so there's no doubt that the brain is a dynamic organ and changes over the course of a lifespan. And I would also uh, be happy to say that as we learn things, uh, that learning is associated with changes in the brain. Uh, But to say you know, that we can blame uh, criminal activity or something like uh, more prosaic dishonesty on the brain, all those neurons, Uh, I I think that's, as I've said, dangerous, because it uh, sort of undermines the notion that we're responsible for our actions, and it's also very misleading. You and I still... uh, you know, need to consider our course of action, what what the options are that are available to us and uh, deliberate over what we think is best. Hmm. And those decisions are something we need to be prepared to take responsibility for.
3: Well, and it, it seems like just because I have more blood flow th- and noted through the FMRI to my amygdala, then they have to interpret what that's doing, right? I mean, it could just simply be, I'm more in a fight or flight mode because I know I'm lying, than it is now that that, the, uh, that my amygdala's. Oh, oh, no, but then they saw the blood flow became less over time, I see.
9: That's right. So the idea is that this part of the brain associated with emotion and decision-making is actually less activated, uh, you know, that there might be less emotional response to what I'm doing as I, you know, lie one time after another. Habitualize it, yeah. you do not know for sure that that's what that means. You know, it's a reasonable hypothesis, and to some degree it can be Tested, but uh, it, it could mean something else. Do Do
3: you think there will be a day? And I I have two brothers that are radiologists, and I'm always picking their brains about this. Um, more and more, we're using you know uh, these these instruments to get in and see what's going on in the brain. Will there be a day that before we prescribe, for example, um, antidepressants or anti anxiety meds, that we will more naturally just evaluate through imaging the brain before we do it?
9: I think that is definitely a possibility. Right now, in many cases, it would appear to be prohibitively expensive, but over time it could be our tests become more sophisticated and informative and uh, the cost goes down and we might determine, you know, that uh, say an antidepressant that would work well in patient A would be ineffective in patient B, or might even cause uh, undesirable hmm. side effects in patient B, and we should try another medication. I, I think that's definitely a possibility in the future. Because sort of a more personalized medicine based on an, an understanding of, uh, you know, the structure and function of a patient's brain.
3: Yeah. I mean, we use imaging for, uh, for a lot of diagnoses just not mental health quite yet, it doesn't seem like, and yet...
9: Yeah, not very much, but certainly for a brain tumor, for example, mm. you know, that's a, by and large a diagnosis that's going to be made with a CT scan or an MRI scan of a patient's brain.
3: Hmm. That's fantastic. I mean, really, as a and as a radiologist, that's got to be pretty exciting for you to see how much more we're able to learn. I mean, do you, do you like the fact that universities now are using a lot more fMRI to to actually do their studies with?
9: Yeah, I think it uh, it's you know it's a field that shows great promise. A hundred years ago. To study the brain we very often had to remove it from the patient <laughs> yeah. or the animal that ruined a it, lot it of things yeah. in life you know and then and then uh, slice it up and stain it and look it out under a microscope but today we have these wonderful in vivo or you know in life while
4: while, while the alive, patient or yeah.
9: subject is still living we can actually watch the brain in action so this is without a doubt uh, a new era in our understanding of the brain. We just need to be careful that we don't get swept away by the potential of these new techniques to the point where we want to make a human being a brain and nothing more mm, you know so true if you know if we could see the brain scan we would know the person that is just dead wrong right. in in important respects you could look at the brain of albert einstein or the brain of william shakespeare and compare it to mine and it might be fairly hard to tell the difference mm. you know the what the way you really tell a difference would be to engage those people in a conversation watch them do your their thing That's and you so know weird. we quickly realize that uh, we've got two geniuses and one dud on our hands
4: <laughs> <laughs> not
3: true but but isn't that that's the point too is uh get to know the people right understand what's in their heart they i mean even again we as parents i think we do the same thing we just might call it a lie But it also may be with our children. The lie was not the point. The point was they didn't feel safe. They didn't know how to communicate the truth. They didn't know. They didn't have the moral code tightly, you know, entrenched in their belief system. Uh, Now, if the the
9: response to lying isn't neuroimaging, it's education. You know, and conversation. I mean, if if you're going out to dinner with somebody you think you might want to marry someday. Uh, you know the, the the way to find out who they are and determine whether they're the person you want to spend the rest of your life with is, by and large, to to talk with them. You
3: not know, not that, have them image.
9: Never suffice to just get. Uh, you know, here are the results of your potential mate's uh, functional MRI <laughs> imaging. Now make your choice. Right. I mean, it's just. That's not the way it is. It's
3: not the way it's it's supposed to be, is it? Plus, no. the media. You because you do a lot of writing with the Atlantic, and you're such a, a, a I think a, a really strict uh, academic as well, publishing 500 plus articles. How 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 do you inform the media um, to make sure that they don't? twist and turn your research. It seems like that's still the responsibility, I guess, of the researcher to a point and a responsibility of the media to make sure you're getting it
4: right.
9: Yeah, uh, it's the, there's, uh, you know, some inherent tension in that, because if you're an academic researcher, you know, you want to your research to remain funded You want uh, your colleagues in the field and and your colleagues at your home institution to have a high level of respect for your work. And sometimes getting your research covered in the national news media uh, helps uh, to achieve that end. But the danger is uh, sometimes we may misstate things or overblow things, uh, which gets us a lot of media attention but ultimately misleads readers, you know, and people who hear these uh, stories reported in broadcast media. We just need need some skepticism, some critical thinking, and some good old-fashioned honesty uh, to make sure that we don't overstate what we found.
3: What's your next article that you're writing right now? What's coming up that you'll be releasing in The Atlantic that we all ought to be looking for?
9: Well, the piece I'm working on right now is the idea that uh even though you're a dying person, you can still in important respects be a healthy human being. Mm. We see some patients you know with terminal illnesses uh who are you know maybe in the last uh, months or even weeks of their life who are just extraordinary examples of human beings who are making the you know the time available to them as uh, meaningful as possible. I think uh, I've I've known people who, despite serious illness, seem to do a lot more living in a day than I managed to get done. And Mm. I I think those are stories that we really need to share.
3: I love that. Uh, We'll have to have you back, Richard, because you really touch on this vein of, I guess, humanity. There's this human side to all of this science, and many times we overlook it and, and fear it, like in the case of death, We're so, like, caught up with their dying that we don't have the eyes to see how they're living.
9: Boy, that is really well put, Matt. I couldn't agree more.
3: That's powerful. Well, keep it up, Richard. Uh, Great to talk to you and get to know more of what you're doing. Again, Dr. Richard Gunderman's his name at TheAtlantic.com. Really a resource, I think, for all of us. So many interesting concepts Um, Read and and then bring the issues up to the people you love. You got a lot of family time coming up at Thanksgiving. Do a little reading of Dr. Gunderman and find out where you need to, uh, you know, some conversations you might want to bring up. Powerful stuff. We'll take a break. Helping you see the good in the world. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. As you know, we uh, we always like our producers to, to to go in deep on the issues they're facing in life. And Leanna Tan, one of our uh, producers, has put together a little tangent on what it's like to be what she calls a half see A half see is, uh, we'll let her explain it, but it's a challenge faced by many Americans and probably even more in the future.
2: You know when you first meet someone and they ask, where are you from? Usually, a very simple question and a very simple answer, but not in my case. Not because I'm an army brat or grew up in a bunch of different places or anything, but because sometimes I genuinely don't know what people are asking me. Are they asking my home country, my home state, hometown, where I live now? Most of the time, it's none of the above. Usually, people are asking me what ethnicity I am. Well, in case you all are wondering, I'll give away the secret. I'm half Caucasian Uh and half Chinese. It's okay. No one else can ever tell either. But then, once I do tell people, I never hear the end of it. Being mixed races has its advantages, and I wouldn't change it for the world. But it definitely comes with its challenges, too. Let me take you a step into my life and share with you five struggles of being a Habsi. Buy. Buying nylons or foundation in Walmart. You know how long it takes me to shop for that kind of stuff? I swear, Walmart is built to accommodate predominantly white people and white people who go tanning. Those gradation skin tone palettes are missing quite a few colors. It takes me hours because I either end up looking ghostly white, pumpkin orange, or some fuchsia color in between. Oh, pretty. Maybe if I can at least match my foundation and nylons, then half of me will be the same color, and then I'll just wear long sleeves and gloves and no one will be able to tell the difference. Filling out standardized forms. Uh. This always confused me as a child before I took a test and I had to fill out what my ethnicity was. And back then you could only fill out one bubble or mess up the Scantron machine thing. Back then, they would only give you like five choices. White, black, Asian, Hispanic, or other. That was usually the hardest question on the entire test for me. Whether I filled in the bubble for white or Asian... Either way, I'd be half wrong. Having people randomly speak to me in foreign
4: languages.
2: (laughs) One of the cool things about being mixed ethnicities is that usually that means you're bilingual. So yeah, everyone always asks me to speak Chinese to them. But sadly, the only things I know how to say are the few phrases I remember from a couple high school and college classes like, Why are you laughing? And I have seven people in my family. And then, you know, I'll have my friends' random family members from Mexico start talking to me in Spanish or random people at parties start talking to me in Portuguese or Arabic. I'm flattered, really. But I always seem to be in a constant state of disappointing others. Taking extended family photos. In the summer, I'm too white to fit in with my suntanned American cousins, but much too dark to fit in with my porcelain-skinned Asian side of the family. Whether it's our jet black hair or our cheesy American greens. No matter where you position us, you can always pick out my siblings and I in a family photo at first glance. Stereotypes from all angles. Just trying to live my life like any other person when a label gets thrown my way. You know, I think it's a common thing for a person to get a good score on a test or to like fashion or to cut their hair short, but when I do it, it must be because I'm Asian. We are Siamese, if you please. Being a they can feel like you fit in a little bit everywhere, but fully fit in nowhere at the same time.
4: Oh.
9: Of skin but
2: by the of character maybe it's because most of the time my face looks an off pink color while my legs like a burnt orange oh pretty so no one can ever really tell where I'm from oh, all you havesies is out there living a life in limbo I empathize and everyone else out there in my opinion you don't have to be scared about just asking someone what ethnicity are you and remember People are more complex than a skin tone palette or a Scantron sheet may lead on. So, let's lift the labels and see people for their whole selves. Even if that means seeing them as havesies. Well, I'm Leanna Tam, and that's my little tangent.
0: This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter
1: at DrMattShow.
0: Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU.
1: This is the Matt Townsend Show.
2: Dr. Matt Townsend.
0: Now on BYU Radio.
1: BYU Radio.
3: Welcome back, friends. Hour number three of the Love Fest. Top of the morning to you. Today is the day that uh, we celebrate fast food. It's Fast Food Day. So,
6: you know, grab a hamburger, some fries. I told you yesterday about McDonald's and their Nutella, the Nutella burger yeah. in Italy. Blah. But, uh, really? Just yeah. bread and chocolate spread?
4: Mm. Okay.
3: I mean, yeah, but they don't, don't call it a Nutella burger because then everybody in their head thinks it's, there's meat in it.
6: And at first I thought that, but they just kind of baked part of it to look like there it was It looks like it's meat. Yeah. It's not. It's just a brown it's just a brown stripe on the bun. Which doesn't sound good either. Not at
5: all. <laughs> have you had a Have you ever had a knuckle sandwich? Uh only by the My neighborhood pig, bully. Pig knuckles? I feel like uh I feel like delivering a knuckle sandwich to Are oh, you still bringing this up? Yeah.
3: There's a lot of
6: rage.
5: So
3: Jeff has been trying to get a home mortgage on a new home um, to change his family's life forever, hmm. and yet the mortgage company and the title company keep saying we got it, it's all under control. And yet, yesterday they were supposed to close, and it didn't happen because now
5: the mortgage company's like, we need we need a little more information, and our, our systems have shut down. Which, Which systems, to me are you think, talking about If the systems are down, you go home. The day is over, work mm. is done. Yeah. So why are you there telling me the systems are down?
3: They're, they're just trying to keep you informed, but
5: they're just trying to buy some but more time.
3: They're, they're talking about their, their, their computer systems have gone down, their systems are down, but when that happened, then your systems went down, and you haven't been able to sleep, eat, drink, anything.
5: Hmm. Yeah,
3: can't even shave. That's how bad it's getting. So if you'll just keep him in your prayers, that'd be great.
6: Who? The mortgage people?
5: No, Jeff. Oh. Let's let's make a commitment right now if if we don't close on the house today, we'll will announce the name tomorrow.
6: Wow.
5: <laughs> and, public shaming. Let's and, do it. And we mean it. And then Friday we'll announce the names of the employees and their children.
3: Or else, so you've got till the end of the day today.
6: Ah, ah, ah. It's not a misuse of opportunity at all.
3: No, it's not at all. (laughs) Just helping out a friend. Uh, We'll get to that fun, you know, tomorrow we will inform you if Jeff owns a new home or not. Or we'll just give you some names.
6: Are you going to help him through this trying time? I mean, you are a doctor. I am a doctor. I'm also checking moles tonight. (laughs) You're, you're not that kind of not doctor. Can you
5: write us that? some prescriptions? Ooh. No.
3: Yeah, prescription. Love one another. Uh, it's
6: not what he's talking about. He wants the good stuff.
3: Okay. Um, serve, always. Oh. That's a good one. Wow. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again.
6: Right. Tim- timeless advice. Timeless advice.
3: Timeless advice. We'll get to all that fun. Uh, today we will also be talking about why your children need some make-believe time. Mm. So if your child, you know, brings his imaginary friend Chester to dinner, should you feed Chester? Yeah. Give him double. Give him triple the amount that you'd normally give somebody.
5: I do that as an adult. You know, for instance, I imagine what it would be like to live in a new home and – Still going there. But then it makes me upset.
6: There's a theme here. Yeah. He's angry. Last night my na- a neighbor gave my kid a uh, it's like a turkey candy dispenser. What? It's a little toy you can fill turkey, it with like candy. jelly beans. Okay. And like you push down on the tail of the turkey and it oh, cute. drops out sure. a jelly bean. Hold on. It drops a jelly <laughs> so you push on the tail and it drops a jelly th- bean out of the how, turkey. I think that's how it works, yeah. You don't let him eat that, do you? It's just a jelly bean. He's fine. Well but now he, but wait like he a, goes to the zoo. This turkey had an entire conversation going on last night. Oh really? I'm like, who are you talking to? He goes, my turkey. What did he name the turkey? Uh, I don't think we've got to name level. Yet. Tom, maybe that's Tell today. Me about Tom, yeah, I always give him like his bear's name's Bruce because okay. why not? Yeah, yeah, and uh, so he's playing with this turkey. And I'm like, what are you? Who are you talking to? Because it was really intense. He goes, the turkey. Like it's a toy. <laughs> and He goes, no, it's a turkey. And I'm like, okay, have fun. Okay. So I tried to ruin the pretend time. And he resisted Dad's evil influence. So he gets that it's a toy, but it's a re-
3: he thinks it's a real thing. But then he still eats the jelly beans. Absolutely, because they're good jelly beans. He knows candy. See, this is why children are special because they can they can do that jump. Yeah, he, an adult adult humans can't do that. No, um,
6: I go do something important like watch TV.
3: That's why I could play with my Lone Ranger horse mm. that was about I don't know six inches tall. And it could still go together with, like, a Lego man that was only an inch and a half, two inches tall.
5: Did you call him Tonto?
3: Yeah, but that Tonto could ride that big, bad horse. (laughs) It all worked in my mind. See? It's all great. Don't mess with a child's uh, need to have have role play and and make-believe. So joining us, uh, um, we'll be replaying, actually, an interview we did with Tracy Gleason that'll uh, touch on that subject. But... We also will hear from our good buddies from BYU Sports Nation. We'll do a hero of the day. Plus, we'll give you other headlines and news information, some of which you might even want to know. But first, let's get to the national headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up?
7: Senator John McCain is sounding an alarm over the blossoming relationship between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. With the U.S. presidential transition underway, Vladimir Putin has said in recent days that he wants to improve relations with the United States, McCain said in a Tuesday statement. We should place as much faith in such statements as any other made by a former KGB agent who has plunged his country into tyranny, murdered his p- political opponents, invaded his neighbors, threatened American allies and attempted to undermine America elections. The Kremlin and Trump's office both said the pair have spoken on the phone and aides are planning a face-to-face meeting. A Somali man from Minnesota who was stopped at the John F. Kennedy International Airport on his way to join ISIS was sentenced to 10 years in prison on Tuesday. The Somali man was stopped at the JFK along with three other men in November 2014 on reports from the Minneapolis FBI branch that the men were suspected terrorists and on their way to join up with Islamic State militants. A Southwest Airlines employee at Oklahoma City's Will Rogers World Airport was shot and killed Tuesday, and the suspect was found hours later dead after a self-inflicted gunshot wound, police said. The victim has been identified as Michael Winchester, 52 years old. Oklahoma City Police Department said the suspect, who was found in a truck inside a parking structure at the airport, has not been positively identified. The shots were fired near a parking lot, and while the shooting was not random, the police said it is too early to know the exact motive. And finally, yes, another very bizarre story for you. Of course. I just don't understand people sometimes, but here you go. A woman who once earned a six-figure salary has traded in her glamorous career in the corporate world to cut toenails. Uh, Melissa Harrison.
6: The satisfying clip.
7: Go ahead. (laughs) 46 now makes a living running the Toenail People, a mobile business that solves the simple, if not repulsive, task of toenail trimming. So she gives pedicures? Pretty much. Okay. While the job may make some people squeamish. Melissa has no problem getting down and dirty, and just after two years, she already boasts a client list of more than four hundred people, with the treatment costing an average of thirty dollars mm. and proving popular among the elderly community. She yeah.
6: has a belt sander for the tough cases. Yeah. Yes, yes.
7: Mm. business is taking off, and now she's gearing up to take it nationwide. Mm.
6: Ugh! Oh. Ugh! No! It's missing the thing. Stop! <laughs> As it bounces off to something. <laughs> yeah. So, that, uh, no,
7: no, no. Uh, but Terry, uh, I, I do have to clarify. Yeah. It's not a pedicure service. Really? She literally goes Just cuts and toenails. cuts toenails. Okay, that's gross. Disgusting. Hold on, but it's 30 bucks? It's $30. A time? A time. Hmm. With 400 clients. What? That's quite a bit of money.
6: <laughs> wow. Well, wh- that's... It'd be interesting to find out what motivates people to pay for it.
7: I guess elderly people just really want their toenails cut precisely.
6: Well,
4: okay, so
3: I guess hire a neighborhood kid.
7: <laughs> well, technically, getting a pedicure is cheaper than that. Sometimes, yeah, you get a basic bucks. you get a basic pedicure that's fifteen bucks. That's plus a massage, plus washing your feet off, plus scrubbing your feet.
6: Maybe some lemon water.
7: Yep,
3: it seems like thirty bucks a year is. What you
5: should be paying it, paying for it.
7: Exactly.
5: By the way, do you know the proper way to cut your fingernails versus cutting your toenails? No. Do tell. So the fingernails, you cut them round. The toenails, you cut them straight. Really? I'm doing it right now.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I can notice. <laughs> Holy cow. You've got like click. <laughs> you've got your clippings all over this room. Yeah, they're just
6: bouncing around. Don't stuck let them get to the, in the wall. wall.
3: Don't let him get in the board. You You're thought they got there. mad about drinks on the board. Yeah, they get mad with toenails everywhere. Wait till they get a toenail in there. Wow, Sadie, thanks for bringing that touch of home.
6: You're welcome. Oh, so gross.
3: Blah!
5: You still going at it over there? I've only got like eight more toes left.
6: <laughs> wow. He's gone through two. That's gross. Well, he's got inches to yeah. go. You can't just take it all in one clip. You have to... Take a little bite here, a little bite there. (laughs) Speaking of bites. Yes. always like to bring you new food. Yeah. The Oreo company, the cookie maker, announced a line of Oreo cookie-based candy bars on Tuesday. Yeah. One variety is already available in some retailers, others coming in January. The Milka Oreo Big Crunch Bar. Say it like you mean it. What do you mean? Like you just announced it like an announcer. The Milka Oreo. Milka, it's the name of a say European. Get, say it all together. The Milka Oreo Big Crunch Bar. <laughs> How's that? Sounds great. It's a sandwich. Is the it's a wafer part of the cookie between two stripes of cream, sort of a reverse Oreo, and then coats it in European Milka chocolate, which I've heard is better than U.S. chocolate. Yeah, I've heard that. They they make them differently. This is a variety the company says is now available at select retailers. I believe this is. I don't know if this is available in the U.S. Is the problem. So, with European chocolate? I don't know if that's the case. Then there's a Melka Oreo chocolate bar coming in January for those who like the double stuff Oreos. Okay. It's got thick cream layered, pebbled with Oreo cookie pieces, all coated in the same milk chocolate. And in January, a Melka Oreo cocoa mix, a bag of treats described as Oreo minis, golden Oreo minis, and chocolate candy buttons. Mm. The candy covered chocolate mixed together for a delicious multi textured experience. Sounds fantastic. So, Oreo candy bars. What do you think? Is that a is that That's a, a development we need? That's a total go. Okay. Who
3: wouldn't want that? It's not like a traffic light in Arkansas County. <laughs> Listen to this. <laughs> reviews are mixed after one Arkansas County gets its first stoplight. Madison County, Arkansas just got the first stoplight and it's receiving mixed reviews. Well, I'll have to – I'll have you know I hate it, Jessica Watkins wrote to the Huntsville Police Department's Facebook page. I've already seen three people run it, wrote Jacob Luttrell. I ran it, wrote Gail Comer. (laughs) (laughs) It's not like the traffic signal uh, sneaks up on people. They're just not used to having such a thing, said Huntsville Police Department uh, Chief Todd Thomas. We know there's going to be a learning curve to having a traffic light in town. People have to stop now. Especially when some of these people haven't seen a stoplight, you know, hardly ever. Some people don't uh, leave the county much, Thomas said. (laughs) But uh, it's there, the first ever in the county of 15,700 residents. The the new stoplight frees the police chief up from directing traffic at the intersection every morning while the kids are on their way to the... Huntsville High School.
6: Right. This would be the traffic crossing guard, right? It's like...
3: It, but it's huge. Imagine these people that have never seen one because they don't leave the county. And they're like, what's with the red thing? There, oh, they're getting those Christmas decorations out early this there, year. There's
6: something like six counties that are left in Arkansas without traffic lights. Really? Yeah.
3: Why ruin a good thing? Just let it go. Yeah. Let it go. Have a just put a temporary light up every morning
6: and have a traffic person be you, there. You know who it was? Hell oh, wow. Uh, it's that sheriff that has the government job who doesn't want to work. Oh, it's right? Lazy. He doesn't want to go out there in the early. He's lazy. He doesn't want yeah. to work for his money. Government job. That's what's going to happen. Well,
3: congratulations to all of y'all in Madison County.
5: So if they need to meet their quota, the cops know where they can just park their cars. That's right. Just wait. Just just nabbing
3: people left and right for the higher price, running a red stoplight. I wonder if it's just like the one red light flashing. Yeah, maybe. Or does it actually have red, green,
6: yellow? Huh? huh? W- would you need all that? Let's I don't know. That let's, might really
5: tip it over. Let's ease them into this. One <laughs> light at a time. One light at a time.
3: Hey, uh, London now has a grown-up ball pit bar serving bottomless spaghetti and meatballs, a ball pit for adults. Hmm. Would you ever go to a restaurant and then excitedly run to the ball pit with a bunch of your buddies and jump in and just
6: start playing in the
3: balls? No. You wouldn't do that?
6: I, as a kid, I even had sort of a sideways thought of, this is kind of gross.
5: This is gross. These people are but, swimming in these. Well, you, I think if there were meatballs, then no, I could do that. You look up
6: and some kid's like licking one of the balls. And <laughs> you're like, whoa, whoa, What's going on? The problem is upstairs, they serve food.
3: And they'll serve beef meatballs, deep-fried cheese balls, and pancake balls. The whole theme of the bar is you you get balls. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of good food upstairs. Then you go downstairs to the ball pit. A lot of
6: bald meat going on in that restaurant.
3: So I don't know that you want somebody mistaking a meatball and then going down to the ball pit and jumping in.
5: I still think that uh, the way I read this the first time is that the meatballs were in the pit. So that if you didn't finish yeah. your meal, the the busboys would just take the plates and just f- fork it off into the pit. Mm. But you know that there are some meatballs that do make it down to the pit.
6: Uh, yeah. I mean, there's got to be one guy that's like, I'm not getting rid of this cheese ball for nothing. Or this will be funny and they chuck it in there. I wonder if they'll find this one, you know. And then all of a sudden it's just really gross. If
3: you're one that gets, like, grossed out by the idea of adults diving around chest deep in a pool of plastic balls, 200,000 plastic balls, just know that there is a cleaning machine called the Gobble Muffin. That disinfects the balls at a rate of 18,000 balls an hour. The Gobble Muffin. So the Gobble Muffin is constantly replacing and re, re uh, they're cleaning Sanitizing. Sanitizing yeah. each of the balls. To play in the ball pit, there's a, th- a $5 charge. Mm. Or for $35, you'll be able to enjoy one hour in the ball pit and one hour of bottomless spaghetti meatballs with drinks included. Yeah. Now, if you spent, uh, oh, this, is this the Gobble Muffin? So are
5: you getting sprayed then if you're in the ball pit? Now, I think they remove the balls. You must shower before you enter the ball pit. Yeah. That's one of the rules. They got to they gotta do it while the balls are in the pit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a higher charge. That's like $50
3: if you want to be in there when the gobble muffin's in there. Um, so here's the problem. when you, uh, I, I don't know that I want to be in a ball pit with any guy that just ate all-you-can-eat bottomless yeah. meatballs and spaghetti. Yeah dinners i don't want to jump in a ball pit at all
6: it doesn't seem satisfying at all
3: it seems like we could make a better idea around a restaurant okay so uh so much to do folks so much to talk about we'll take a break when we come back we'll be replaying an interview we did with uh, tracy gleason about the importance of make-believe let your kids be kids for heaven's sakes developmentally they needed. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the kind of parent you want to be, understanding your kids. We'll be back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, if you were at work and heard someone talking to, let's say, nobody, you might be a little weirded out, right? Talking to an imaginary person can sometimes be seen as socially awkward, but for young children, these imaginary friends could actually be the ones who teach kids social skills to begin with. Joining us is uh, Tracy Gleason, and Tracy is a professor of psychology and the psychological director at the Wellesley College Child Study Center, she's a former preschool teacher and mom of a ten year old of ten year old twins, and uh, we found a wonderful article that she wrote about this topic on theconversation.com. dot Dr. Tracy Gleason, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Oh, thank you for having me.
3: This uh, this is a I think an interesting topic for today's day and age. We we have so many things that can occupy our children's minds and their time. But it, it seems like they're not, they're not just out using their imagination like we used to. Is, is that true, or am I just being an old fogey?
0: <laughs> well, I have to be honest with you. That is something that I worry about. Uh, I think most of the time when children do interact with imaginary companions, it, it starts because they have time to themselves. Uh, and there is some evidence to suggest that pretend play in general is something we turn to when we don't have a lot of other stuff going on, when, when we aren't scheduled into activities. So it, it's a good question. Uh, I'm not sure that I can say, you know, definitively that we do it less now right. than, than we used to. Uh, I, don't, I don't have evidence of that. But it does, you know, sort of practically speaking, it does seem like children do have more and more kind of scheduled activities earlier and earlier in their lives
3: one of the things that you you talk about is um, this imaginary friend kind of idea um, with our children. I guess that's a normal part of child development uh, is 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 having and learning. I guess social interaction through either real experiences or imagined,
0: yeah, or role exactly. playing even. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot of different ways that children use their imagination, and in fact, adults as well uh, in their interactions with other people. Um, children who have imaginary companions uh, are actually quite common. We think of them as, as kind of rare, but in fact, there's a study that, talked about, um, or that looked at children up to about age 7 and discovered that about 60% of them had an imaginary companion at some point. Now, I should mention that that included both invisible imaginary companions, which is kind of the classic idea of what an imaginary companion is, but also um, there's a category of imaginary companions that we call personified objects. Things like stuffed animals mm. or dolls or toys or blankets, really any object you can think of can be made into a friend, um, that children also use and animate and personify uh, as if they're real people. So in, if you include both the objects and the invisibles, it's, it's something that happens a lot.
3: And, and I, I guess they're doing it. Why? What, what is their, what, you know, what's the developmental need here that they're working on?
0: Um, your question kind of assumes there is a developmental need, and, and you're probably right at least some of the time. Um, and, and, you know, the question also sort of assumes there's a reason, uh, when in fact, I think there are probably as many reasons why children create imaginary companions as there are imaginary companions themselves. Um, first and foremost, I think children create imaginary companions because it's fun. Uh, it's, it's it can be very entertaining to have somebody else there that you can play with, um, especially if they want to do what you want to do. That's kind of nice. Uh, but at the same time, children use imaginary relationships to work out all kinds of things, um, to explore ideas about relationships, such as um, ideas about friendship, uh, it's very safe to get in an argument with your imaginary friend because you can decide when that argument is over mm. and you can figure out, you know, what has to happen in order to, to make it um, resolved. Whereas with a real friend, boy, you know, those other little kids are so unpredictable, it's hard to know what's going to happen. So children can, can use these imaginary forums for exploring negative emotions or tough ideas or things that have scared them uh, or just simply things they have really enjoyed.
3: Can can parents – I mean it seems powerful to be able to watch your child engaging with their imaginary friend because it, it seems like it would give you a whole other view of what's going on in your child's head.
0: Yeah. I mean to the extent that parents can observe their children interacting with imaginary companions or really engaging in any form of pretend play – uh, they can get some ideas about what is on their children's minds. Um, but one of the things that a student of mine, Rachel White, and I discovered is that among parents who know about their children's imaginary companions, because most of them do, but, but not all, um, we do find that the imaginary companions appear a lot, not so much when the children are, say, by themselves or playing, but often in conversation with adults. So it's it's almost like a conversation starter. Like, you know, you're you're talking about, you know, um, mom's business trip and the child might say, well, you know, my imaginary companion went on a business trip, too. Um, So you're able to uh, bring a topic to the table that only you know about and then you know, the parents need to ask questions to know what's going on with your imaginary companion. So it's also kind of fun because you hmm. control it.
3: And and how much of that, so I guess then the parent just engages, oh, so tell me where your friend went and, and starts engaging and allows the child to kind of go with their story.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then you have all these wonderful things happening because the child is practicing narrative, which is pretty important to us um, as social creatures. And they are engaging in a in a kind of perspective taking, thinking about what their imaginary companion was thinking about and doing. And, um, and, and they also are, you know, inventing details and being creative and coming up with, with stories about, you know, what the imaginary companion does for a living, that it would need to go on a business trip. Hmm. So, and then beyond all that, they're interacting with and engaging with an important person in their lives and having this, this wonderful, fun interaction around um, the imaginary companion.
3: And I, I could just see some people worrying that, well, honey, okay let's let's talk about my tra-. I mean like I mean maybe they wouldn't, but d- there's really not a need to worry about this at all.
0: not remotely um have I've been doing this research for a long time, and and you know I'm obviously in touch with a lot of the other people like Marjorie Taylor at the University of Oregon, who's been doing this for ages and ages and I think in all the years that she and I have been doing work in this area. She encountered one child in whom she was not entirely certain that the child knew that the imaginary companion wasn't real. I've never encountered a child who didn't know that. And in fact, sometimes I'll, I'll interview a child who has an imaginary companion and I'll be asking questions about how old is your friend and uh, what his name is and if it's a boy or girl and where it lives and, you know, just sort of basic stuff like that. And maybe halfway through the interview, the child will say to me, you know, he's not real. <laughs> As if, you know, they're kinda of concerned. You know. Tracy,
3: you know he's not real, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's great.
0: Exactly. Maybe this this lady's a little too into it. I don't know. I gotta, gotta make sure that we're on the same page here. And I will say, I know, and then and then we'll go right back to the interview and it's all fine. Interesting. So they just kinda check in. Like just make sure we you know, we know what we're talking about here.
3: This is fascinating and um I, I don't ever remember having imaginary friends. I wonder if I missed something. Let's take a break, Tracy. We'll come back. I want you to tell us more about the power that this can have for unlocking different perspectives and being able to, I guess, voice and and share more with our family or our parents um, having these imaginary friends. We're speaking with Dr. Tracy Gleason um, from Wellesley College Child Study Center, and uh, she's filling us in, giving us the tools, the information we need to be better parents to understand our children. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show, on the phone with us, Dr. Tracy Gleason. And she's talking to us about an article we found that she um, that she authored in the conversation, why make-believe play is important, is an important part of childhood development. And we've been talking about these imaginary friends that the kids have. About 60% of uh, children, is, if it sounds like, will either have an imaginary friend or kind of a um, a Personified object, their teddy bear, something that they can, yeah, you know, use as a, a tool, I guess, in interacting with life, a safe space in a way. And Dr. Gleason, thank you again so much for being with us. Oh, sure thing. What? Um, so when it comes to the imaginary friends and uh, the imaginary friends or the uh, personified objects that our children play with, is I guess the idea is this: this gives them a chance to have a voice. It gives them a, a safe uh, place because it seems confusing in a way because they have to deal with their personality, but also they have to make up the personality and the narrative for this imaginary thing. But when you also think about it, that's some serious learning. I mean, that's Absolutely. that's some major negotiating going on.
0: Absolutely. Uh, in fact, that's I think one of the most fascinating aspects of this play. Uh, and not only are you keeping in mind who you are your, and who your imaginary companion is, but you are also inventing a relationship that exists between the two of you. And one of the things that we find is that some children invent relationships that are egalitarian, like friendships, uh, and some children invent relationships that are more hierarchical, um, usually where they themselves are Kind of like the parent and the imaginary companion is the child, but hmm. you do find somewhere uh, the child is is the child, and the imaginary companion might be more of a kind of mentor or um, not necessarily a parent per se, but somebody with more power and competence than the child themselves um, so you know the fact that they are inventing these relationships and that they resemble different types of real relationships suggests that. This is an area in which children can kind of explore what relationships are all about.
3: And I guess, uh, is there an age where we're, we're thinking, okay, maybe it's time your imaginary friend stays home from work?
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: or, well, I mean, is there is there a point that this ends, I guess, just naturally? Or, or is right. some form of this still going on inside of each of us that helps us distinguish who we are from others or...
0: Right, uh, excellent question. I think that's that's probably something we need to do a lot more thinking about because it's true. You don't find a lot of children who are, say, ten or fifteen, or adults in the workplace who are, you know, say, my imaginary companion went on a business trip. Um, <laughs> that that isn't something that really occurs so much. Um, oh, it
3: doesn't. It does in my world. Just so you know, <laughs> I just have this one guy. I don't want to mention
0: names. Well, but I'm not sure if it does happen, if that's necessarily a problem, because, as I said, I mean, even the youngest children know they're not real. And that's usually the best signal that somebody is, you know, got it all together. Yeah. Um, So, you know, even if your adult friend has an imaginary companion, but, you know, will admit when pressured that that, this is something that I've made up there's no reason why that can't still be a fun thing to do. What we find is that typically children stop talking about imaginary companions around the time that they start formal schooling, like maybe kindergarten, first grade. But you can still find them if you ask about them. And, in fact, there's lots of evidence that children in middle childhood and even in adolescence have, sometimes have, imaginary companions. But they they have a slightly different form than the, the ones from early childhood um, they they tend not to be talked about out loud, but maybe just thought about. Kind of, you know how little children often narrate what they're doing? Yeah. They talk a lot about the activities they're engaged in, and they just kind of do a little sing-song thing maybe while they're playing. Um, when that kind of external um, voice or narrative disappears and becomes internal, that's around the same time that imaginary companions kind of disappear or stop getting talked about. But they might actually, you know, They go underground and and still be present in many children's lives. And as for adults, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking particularly about real people, but imagining conversations Mm -hmm. with Anticipate, yeah. Yeah, anticipating arguments or, you know, maybe you have great news to share and you're thinking about how you might say it or, um, you know, the different ways that you could present it. Um, or you're you're anticipating a job interview, and, and maybe you've never met your interviewer, but you might imagine a conversation with this, you know, real person but who's imaginary to you because you haven't met them yet. And you might imagine what they're going to ask you and what you're going to say in response. I think that's a lot of the same skills as we see children using in, with their imaginary companions in early childhood. Yeah. No. I,
4: in
3: fact, it's interesting to think of it that way. Because it also seems like you have a huge advantage to have a big imagination. It, I mean, it it allows you to see so many other things going on. So how do we, if we have a child uh, that maybe we're too worried is getting maybe too caught up in tech and, and not being creative enough or not generating their own, you know, play or their own activities, are there things we could do to introduce more imaginative activity?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um you know, there is a wide range of individual differences in how much children enjoy pretend play. Some kids would pretend from morning to night, given the opportunity, and other kids really just aren't that into it. Um, And I don't think that's necessarily a problem. Um, I I think having a, a a well-functioning imagination is uh, really important. You know, we, we need to use it to do things like consider different options uh, if we're trying to make a decision or to generate counterfactuals. You know, if I do A, you know, would B happen or C happen? Or, you know, what if I did B, then, you know, what would happen? Um, we use our imagination for that kind of work. So so it is important to um, to develop it. But pretend play isn't the only way that you can develop it. And, in fact, in... In many technical kinds of activities, um, there is a fair amount of creativity and imagination. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure it's necessarily a problem if somebody isn't way into pretend play, um, but I think encouraging different ways of thinking about things and consideration of, of stuff that is outside of the here and now uh, is the essence of the, of the skill that we're trying to develop yeah. here. It's, I, it,
3: the, it, I love that idea. That we know they're so different, but some of us get panicky because how come your children are all doing this, and my child just sits there and bounces a ball?
0: Right. <laughs> well, right, and and, and certainly if a, if a child is kind of stuck in a rut with their play, we we might want to do things to facilitate interest in other um, activities. Um, preschool teachers do this kind of thing all the time, where they. You know, they see that the pretend play has turned into kittens who just meow at each other, and uh, and they, you know, they might introduce a new idea or a new prop or a new scenario to try and, you know, pull the kittens back to human, or maybe pull them into a different scenario where they're where they're kind of operating differently, because um, children, you know, they do sometimes kind of get stuck into a little way of doing things, and and maybe need a little help to to pull themselves out. Um, But, you know, most of the time children are following, well, when they're allowed to, children are following their interests and uh, exploring um, lots of different aspects of various topics and materials and and allowing opportunities for that and providing an environment that opens up doors rather than leads you down a single path is probably the secret to, to fostering this kind of thinking. Yeah
3: well Tracy we appreciate you uh, keep up the great work there at uh, Wellesley College um, as the psychological director there that's wonderful stuff we appreciate you and wow kids oh, they're just beautiful and they're so different right just remember the little things you used to do I just oh, there's so many stories let's all be more patient let kids develop trust, the, trust a lot of the stuff that they'll just do naturally to learn We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we'll visit two of our favorite kids down at BYU Sports Nation and uh, see what's going on on their show. That'll be at the top of the hour. We're wrapping up the day, folks. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little anthem for us as we head down to visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello,
10: gentlemen. Three of the greatest restaurants ever invented.
3: (laughs) Pizza Hut, KFC, McDonald's. This song keeps going. If we had the time, we could get to Burger King. We could get to um, Taco Bell. Mm Mm-hmm. A.K.A. Toxic Smell. Um, we could get all the way through all of the wonderful fast food restaurants. Any idea why we're doing this?
10: No, but I'm reminded that in South Korea, yes, Kentucky Fried Chicken and Pizza Hut are like nice restaurants. Oh yeah,
3: and expensive, right?
10: Yes, Pizza Hut's so expensive, but it's amazing. Linens, it's the best. It's some of the best pizza I ever had.
3: Well, I, th- I think it's in contrast to what you were used to eating. It probably in America, isn't. Yeah. Well, it's probably not as good. It's, it's, it just is because you hadn't, you've been eating a lot of rice and squid. I don't
10: well, know. I didn't eat a ton of squid. No. Perhaps, yes. Perhaps that factors into you it know? a little bit. But you go and you sit down at pizza. It is a nice sit-down restaurant. It's like going to a steakhouse in Korea. Really? It's yes. like
3: Ruth's Chris Steakhouse, hundreds of dollars on pizza.
10: You can spend on yourself. Like, it's like 25 bucks to
3: mm. eat. Mm.
10: And they take care of you. It's oh, uh, Yeah, they, they like handcraft the pizzas. Like, it's, it's interesting how different it is.
3: Today, by the way, fast food day. Mm. Fast, food.
10: Is
11: fast food. Fast
3: food in America. <laughs> America. It hit, it, White Castle was the first uh, that stepped into the scene in 1921. First fast, fast food restaurant. There you go. Okay, I got a new one for you. You tell me if you'd be interested in this restaurant. If I told you that you could go to a restaurant where the whole theme of the restaurant are is about is focused on balls, and then um you get like spaghetti balls, uh you get pancake balls, you get uh cheese balls, and then you could go to the basement and you and your top ten friends could go jump in the ball pit for adults and play in the ball pit all day, would you take it up? Would you be interested?
10: <laughs> Probably not.
11: I would. Sounds amazing.
10: <laughs> Jerem's like, sign me up. Sounds
11: so fun.
3: It's, it's like, you know, it's one of those places that you take your kids, it seems like. But it's for adults. I personally don't want to get in a ball pit with adults.
10: I do not want to do that. That's what I'm saying. I don't, I don't want to do that. That seems
3: weird. But Jerem...
11: Well,
10: I, Make is your case.
11: the size of a kid ball pit, or is it
3: a, it's, a, it's an adult, adult ball pit, yeah. Yeah. Goes yeah. up to your chest.
11: Yeah, baby. This sounds, this sounds like that uh, construction park in Vegas, or whatever, where you can operate heavy machinery.
3: Oh, see, now that would be cool. Like,
11: like an adult sandbox, you know yeah. what I'm saying? That's awesome.
3: If you could operate heavy machinery in a ball pit, I'd totally do it.
11: <laughs> now we're talking. Now we talking. Best of both worlds.
3: Yeah, and then but I'm afraid that some guy's going to bring a cheese ball down and then cross-infect the ball pit, and then all of a sudden somebody's going to walk away with E. coli, you know?
11: Hey, it happens. <laughs> That's
3: the parent in me.
11: we got to stop worrying about this. You know, it just, it just, it, McWorld. It could happen.
3: <laughs> have you ever, have you ever had your kids in the ball pit like at McDonald's and then like the the, the kid with the runny nose comes in?
11: You're like, time to go. Let's go up and at em!
3: And you just rip them out. Go to the next ball pit.
11: The funny thing is, as, as a kid, uh, you know more, so you act differently, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, when the ball pit was first introduced, it was like the greatest thing alive. Oh, now yeah. Now it's like, oh, is there like a dirty needle in there? We're just like <laughs> way more cognizant of what's no. going on. Yet everyone was fine. Yeah. Back then.
3: Well, and we got to be real. There is there is a there's actually a cleaner at this ball pit. I, I want to do full disclosure called the Gobble Muffin. Oh, And the Gobble Muffin goes in and gobbles the balls up and then cleans 18,000 balls an hour. So it's a clean ball pit. Wow. It's just, it just seems something weird where your friend's like, Larry, watch me, watch me. And they're jumping off, you know, into the ball pit. But I don't know, Jerem, I don't know your friends.
10: What is the cleaning mechanism called again?
3: The Gobble Muffin. (laughs) (laughs) Wow.
10: I am now thinking about something that Jerem showed me, I think it was yesterday. Uh, on the interwebs? Uh, yes. Hungry Hungry Hippos Human Edition. Ooh.
11: And, like these people yeah. dressed up as the hippos, and then they'd have like a big uh, container of some kind with a bunch of those kind of ball pit balls, mm-hmm. and they would just like reach out and try and get them.
10: With their plastic them. container. Right. Oh, and, they're oh, and then you pull like them hippos, back. And they're rolling on those little yeah. scooters <laughs> that you sit on. Yeah,
3: yeah. That, that's a that fun sounds game. sounds
11: fun. See, all of this sounds fun.
3: See, so you, you're such
4: a
11: I kid at heart. I want to be six heart. again. I you miss do. it.
3: You, you must have missed part of your childhood. Did you have to grow up fast, Jerem?
11: Uh, when I was yeah <laughs> 11, you're going I did. in. You're going yeah. into doctor not mode. Si- Matt, here. Not I six. Six, I was cool. <laughs> so curious. Six was great. I would wake up and watch cartoons, eat some cereal before I went to school. We'd drop my dad off at the Portland Air Force Base. I'd see the F-16s flying and oh, cool. see the river. Yeah. Uh, Columbia River. It was a beautiful time. You've got a good I, memory. Looking up at the sky, seeing the planes flying over. i rem- in the back of the car. Why I wasn't in a seatbelt, I don't know. But I, I <laughs> it didn't matter back
3: then, Jerem. Yeah, it parents was didn't care era. back then. Do you? Do you guys remember the day that you were like no longer allowed to play with toys because it's time to grow up? Did I don't you ever? Rem- did you ever face that? that? Like, did you ever go to school and your friends didn't play with certain
11: toys, but you're like,
3: oh, I kind of still play with my Matchbox cars.
11: I don't, yeah, I don't remember that transition, luckily.
3: I just remember the, when I went to work the first time, and I brought <laughs> my Matchbox here, cars, like, yeah. Hey,
11: what's up with
3: that? Hey, no one's playing with cars? Okay. Hey, hey the the best. Cars are for kids. Um, what's uh, What's on your show today, gentlemen?
11: It's funny you say that, because Spencer had Cars fruit snacks the other day, and I was like, oh, those look amazing. They're really
3: tasty. <laughs> did he Did he play with them like they were real cars? Like, vroom,
10: vroom. I did not. I just ate them because they're delicious. That's uh. all I did. And good for you. (laughs) So, (laughs) vitamin C. Loaded with vitamin C. Loaded with vitamin C. What's on your show, gentlemen? Okay, so BYU, there there is little drama surrounding BYU in the Poinsettia Bowl because we've known for a number of years that's where they were headed. Other than winning six games, it's kind of not dramatic, right? Right. Or is it, Matt? Oh, boy, I thought it wasn't, but now I think it is. Because when you look at the opponent, it is an entirely different conversation. Like, it's not, ah.
4: there are
10: one or two teams. There are so many moving parts to determining... Yes. Who will play BYU in the point said Yes. Bowl. We're going to discuss the two games all BYU fans need to watch that have nothing to do with the Cougars. Cool. Yet will determine mm. who they play in the bowl oh. game. Oh. Okay. And you'll discuss that. Mm-hmm. Okay. What else? Diane Lake, freshman defensive back, is on the show. He has two interceptions. One of them a pick six against Boise State. Yet there is uh, an unsung hero on both of those plays. We'll talk about that. (laughs)
11: Okay. David Nixon will join us to talk about the UMass game. Uh, What does BYU hope to accomplish as 30 point favorites? And who does he want to play in the bowl game? Plus, a little big deal, no deal. Uh, Jim Fredette continues to uh, hoop it up, and BYU hoops. Has a, an enticing uh, statistics about their non-conference games. Yes, and Dwayne Sweet. The Rock
10: Johnson is the sexiest man alive, according yeah. to People magazine. He'll, he'll oh, be on the well, show yet? No, he won't. <laughs> duh. No,
3: but a picture <laughs> of him might be on the show.
11: We'll have a rock. We'll a rock.
3: A the rock. Show, but not, not the rock. rock. Not not rock. Not the rock. Yeah. A rock. Oh, man, what a show. And top of the hour. Okay, go wax on. Go get ready. Go eat your fruit snacks.
11: We're ready right now. Okay, you always are.
3: Good luck, gentlemen. Bye, Matthew. Knock them dead. That's it. Uh... Boy, they might have a rock on the show. Not the rock, but a rock, not I rock. That's a whole other thing. How cool is that? Living large, living la vida loca. It uh, really is, when you think about it, there's there's so much to the bowl game. I mean, I always worry about the poinsettia bowl because poinsettias are dangerous, poisonous plants. And yet we all get them for Christmas. We get them. Hey, get the poison plant and bring it in on the holiday. And yet everyone has to remind us it's poisonous.
5: Hey, should I deliver some poinsettias to uh, that mortgage company?
3: Yes, but put some more poin than poinsettia. Don't know what that means, but hmm. I think there's an S missing from there. Yeah, I didn't know what. To, I didn't want it to sound like poison. That sounds. You don't want to poison him.
5: No. But just, I wasn't saying that. I was asking you if you thought I should do that. Let's just shoot straight to if
3: you are a mortgage company and you have Jeff's mortgage in your hands or a title company, quit teasing him. Quit leading him on. You either got the goods or you don't got the goods, not to talk slang, but you're killing this man. You
5: kill this man, this man kill you. I'm right. actually lying down right now. That is so weird. It's, I just don't have the strength. You need to stand the up. Strength. You need to stand up. That's why
3: we're going to end the show right here. We always like to end with a hero story. Man, have we got a hero. And by the way, we also have a community, you know, senior member of the local council that's playing the senior member of the local council. Listen to this. Police officers from New Jersey town of Franklin were called, now being called as heroes, hailed as heroes. After one of them risked his own life to save dozens of animals from a local pet shop, the police were uh, the first to arrive on the scene when officers Rafael Burgos and Jeffrey Kroger responded to the call. A fire at a business was already well advanced with visible flames and thick smoke billowing out of the rear of the premises. But uh, it was a pet center. It was a pet center um, that was now on fire with no way of knowing if anybody was trapped inside. er, Officer Burgos fought his way into the shop and conducted a search. After confirming there were no employees inside, Burgos then turned his attention to saving the frightened dogs and cats, the animals that were trapped inside cages throughout the store. Thanks to his courage, he was able to save dozens of pets, and a local veterinary hospital has accepted the survivors to treat the rest of them with smoke inhalation that they sustained during the fire. Burgos sustained smoke inhalation as well during his heroic rescue and was is reportedly recovering in the hospital. He's expected to make a full recovery. And uh, he saved lives of the animals. Um, and then a senior member of the local council got on social media and started to criticize the officer's actions, basically saying a police officer who decides to enter a hazardous situation without proper training, without proper equipment, is not a hero he's a fool he deliberately placed himself in a dangerous situation that was unnecessary well anyway that created some serious backlash and uh then this is, then the community fought back on social media in our estimation burgos is still a hero and you know willing to do the tough stuff so we he- we make him our hero of the day animals are people too as we say on the show so much. But Burgos just did what he had to do, and sometimes you're not always thinking about everything. So we honor him. We honor anybody that takes care of every living thing on this earth, and especially humans, our children. That's a great place to begin. Until tomorrow, folks, make it a great one. We'll be back again to talk tomorrow. Take care of each other.